Hello and welcome to the Create Magic Podcast. We are here with another Creative Weirdos conversation and a really special one at that. Today we have the ungoogleable Michelangelo, someone that has been an inspiration to me for a long time from his visual art to music to the podcast that he runs called Self Portraits as Other People. It has just been a flood of ideas that has uh, been sinking in my mind for the last couple of years, honestly. And finally, due to a a couple of loose connections and semi-synchronicities, uh, I decided it was time to reach out. And this two and a half hour conversation is the result of just such a fun exploration of different ideas from language to creativity to the paranormal and everything in between. I'm definitely going to be having uh, Ungoogle back to do more d- deep dives on certain threads in this conversation. So keep an eye out for that. I think there's going to be a lot of uh, really fun kind of new approaches to creativity that I'm picking up from these types of conversations. And yeah, go check out all of Michelangelo's work that I have linked below. He's selling beautiful original uh, paradoodles for $25 a piece and a million other really cool things. So check out Michelangelo, follow his work and enjoy this conversation. Thank you so much for listening. If you want more, I have a Patreon and stuff linked below and we'll be back soon. Have a great day. Bye. what you were just saying and already touched on some things I wanted to ask. So can you just pick up uh, where you were there? Yeah. Yeah. So you asked me if, um, if I carry everything with me to create with, or if I let the, the place that I'm in dictate it. And it's a little bit of both. So I, I came from the jungle in Mexico and aside from an instrument and some books on the shelf and the paintings that were too big to carry, I basically packed everything up. Uh, so I have all my podcasting equipment art making equipment. And then I'm in New York City right now and the city kind of provides for me in interesting ways. Like I, um, how, how I came on your radar, well, I was already on your radar, I guess, but how we came in touch was that I took a little outing uh, near Ithaca to Interlaken where I ended up on this podcast called Where Did the Road Go? Which the episode is not out yet, depending on when this drops, it might be out by then. Um, and on the way back from there, I packed up everything and then my friend Loga, who I was staying with there, she said, hey, you forgot this container with tomatoes and catos, you know, your tomatoes, your clown noses and your black eggs, your avocados. And so I was like, oh, yeah, don't forget those. So I put them in my bag and I get on this bus and then somewhere in transit, the tricksters came along and and they must have really wanted guacamole because they took that (laughs) stuff. By the time I had arrived at my quote unquote home for the night. Uh, the next morning I looked for these things and they weren't around and it was so weird because I, it was like, there was like the emphasis on you forgot this, pack them up. Yeah. So it was like, they were trying to like, they, right? The, uh, the, the liminal, uh, you don't even have to call them tricksters. You can just say like the liminality of transit took it from me. Yeah. So it's somehow in the, in the midair juggle between Ithaca and New York, uh, one of the balls got <laughs> absconded. And so, um, 
I, you know, you learn to let go. It's like, well, my cherished heirloom tomatoes, they've been <laughs> in the family for so long and now they're gone. But, you know, you learn, you learn to deal with that with grace. And then the next day I'm walking around the city and there is a bag of like $35 worth of art supplies, like tubes of paint oh. in perfect gradients of blue and pink, which is a great palette that I like to work with. They were a little grimy. Beautiful. There had been like some ointment or oil within the bag that had kind of greased and leaked and spilled all over them. So I went uh, and got the supplies I needed, some plastic bags, some tissues to like transfer yeah. those, wash them clean. And now I've got more art supplies. And and this is kind of where we landed when we started recording here is that for the longest time, I was trying to steer clear of physical art making just because of all mm -hmm. the space it takes up. Like right now, my storage unit in Los Angeles, probably 40% of that, if not more, is like paintings that are stored. And yeah. so when I got my tablet, I was like, I can just stuff my pockets with ones and zeros. It's literally traveling light, simulated light. Yes. And uh, what happened when I got to Mexico is that there was this artist who actually I'm meeting up with today because he happens to be in New York uh, named Jose, Jose Ricardo, or better known as Richie or Alebrije. And uh, he was really into free painting, which is, you know, you, kind of like Jackson Pollock style, just like flinging paint at canvases. Yeah. And um, so it was like the, you know, there was just like the play of paint. And so it kind of got me back into painting big. And, and then I really got into doing these divine design pieces that I've been doing lately. And so all of a sudden I'm again, like have amassed a whole bunch of physical paintings. So even like, if you try to get away from that and try to stay mobile, like traveling to New York, I had like a big taped up box full of paintings that I was going to display here at this art show. <laughs> That's beautiful. So there's so many things in just that little opening and that I want to go and kind of explore with you, Michelangelo. First is it's so funny because I've been listening to some of the episodes of your podcast again leading up to this conversation because one, I've retold a story of yours uh, a bunch on my podcast that I really mm. enjoy and I couldn't find the, the episode it came from and I thought it was the one with Stuart Davis. It was, it was, it had to do with, I believe, an ayahuasca trip you had where you encountered some large, uh, not mantid beings, but giant grasshoppers, I believe you described them as. And, and is this uh, ringing bells to you? Yeah. So it was the Stuart Davis episode, I think, because... <sighs> So Stuart Maybe Davis, I didn't make it th th that far or to that part yet. It's just a little a little moment where I think I touch on to that. And it could be that I mentioned it in some other episode too, but it's it's um, relevant to the Stuart Davis episode because Stuart was at some point in a kind of fever dream meditation state visited by a nine-foot-tall mantis entity that beamed yeah. a kind of snap, crackle, and pop transmission to his third eye that revealed an entire feature film that he then wrote and then met the person from his vision who would be the actress and, and all this kind of thing. And so at some point, I think I relayed the story when I was in the Amazon. And this was the, one of the most uncomfortable ceremonies that I've ever been in because there were lots of, I felt like the shaman was kind of compromised in his own health or, or well-being. And so I felt like there wasn't the kind of even if the shaman is just like a placebo totem that makes you feel safe because he's there and supposedly like you can outsource all the knowing and expertise to him. And it's like, he knows what he's doing. And it's like, oh, there's something, there's something threatening here. And he makes a sound and you can interpret that as like, oh, he has shooed it away, you know. But that wasn't happening. There were just like breaches from the other side and they were like uncomfortable 
touchy feely entities like moving through where it felt like oh i got like a slimy bow uh, feathered boa necklace around me right now like what is this yeah my you know there was like all kinds of like weird things were happening around and at one point uh i think i like something there was some like shadow being in the room and then it felt like it entered into me and i felt violated and i ran well i didn't run but i went outside and i took a dump <laughs> in the middle of the garden i think even. yes it was just like there was no time to waste to get up into that bog of eternal stench elevated <laughs> above the ground 10 feet it was like nope right here right now this is happening yeah and so then i came back and when i sat back down my seat had been taken <laughs> like this is like musical chairs you know to the ikaros <laughs> uh there was this like i mean i'm not good with numbers but let's say nine foot tall like mantis or grasshopper being and it was like i was now sitting on its lap which is a very perverse <laughs> feeling that kind of continued the legacy of what i'd already been feeling that night but what was happening was kind of like this was like this blueprint of what i was to transform into and so as i in this discomfort started feeling myself again like in this liminal transit like between human and some otherworldly being um, which the image that I like to conjure for this is from the movie District 9, when, if you don't know if you ever saw that, but where the main character, Vic, is from the Mero, becomes the other. And there's a moment yeah. in there where he's like halfway between, and it's like just the most uncomfortable thing. <laughs> yes, uh, And so in that moment, as I was transitioning, my girlfriend at the time could sense that I was like distraught. And so she put her hand on my back to comfort me. But what was really happening is that now I had one foot in the other world and one hand her hand <laughs> leading me back to the human world which made it all the more uncomfortable and disturbing and i never made the full metamorphosis um so but though and then the crazy thing was that after the ceremony and people were sharing stories i overheard one guy he was like yeah and there was like this giant like grasshopper god or insect god sitting on a throne in his vision and i was like well, you said what you know what? <laughs> You saw what? You're crazy, man. <laughs> no way. Those type of things are, that's so much. I mean, those non-human entities that seem to be consistent throughout those worlds and like Stuart's uh, experience in the, I mean, they're almost their own archetype in the UFO world. And a lot of the times those experiences line up with more of the spiritual or artistic side of the, uh, the UFO experience. So it's interesting right. that there's that connection with the psychedelic realm and kind of artist experience in general. Well, I, th I think that both, and I know that you've touched on to this too in uh, what I've heard from your conversation with, with Josh Kutchin, for instance, um, that the psychedelic experience, the UFO experience, these are basically, you can put these under the umbrella term of mystery, right? Yeah. They're kind of like inexplicable encounters with the abyss and with the, uh, the inner vastness of our, of our innermost being. And what tends to happen when we gather around this vortex of mystery as though it were a campfire is that we tell tales around it, you know? And so it, it navigates, it gravitates, it magnetizes. That's the word I'm looking for. It magnetizes name games towards its center. So the mystery is always going to want to be clothed in some form or another. And so um, it comforts us in a way to have this, just like we have, if you drive along the highway, there's just like advertisements, advertisements, billboards that are almost like the guardrail to the mystery, right? It's like 
this my friend has this lyric this reflection protect this reflection projection is here for your protection the sense that these <laughs> things are there to keep us safe even like to say like aliens ufos it's like it's something we know it's the known unknown it keeps us safe mm-hmm. from facing the actual mystery um yeah and so so you know i take the experiences seriously um but I question the interpretations. So like, I believe people are having encounters with the mystery. I am reluctant to put a particular value judgment or concretize the interpretation of it. I lean closer towards earthbound realities when it comes to this. I think of the psychedelic experience as VR, which is vegetal Mm -hmm. reality. It's an interface on the intersection of the virtual and the spiritual a kind of way for our biology to communicate with our psychology or the other way around, you know? Yeah. Uh, And so the giant insect God, if you want to, you know, we're going to give it like a hierarchical position because it has a throne, apparently. (laughs) Uh, This kind of thing to me speaks to this old idea of like mankind has dominion over the animals. Like what, what does that mean? Like, are we just like, slave driving the herds is is that what's going on or is it that human nature is a nature of mimicry and a nature of of a kind of like a mirror like a crystalline channel that reflects all of the natural world and borrows or steals from the natural world so that like the oars of our boats are modeled after fish like the fins of fish and you know the high-rise towers that we built are like those of the termites and we even have exoskeletons we drive around and we call beetles you know yeah so i think of it in that sense that the grasshopper in like carlos castaneda wrote about this there's like an encounter in one of his books with a gnat which is seen as this like giant, like like big old confrontational alien being, but it's a gnat. It's a tiny little mm-hmm. creature. But so under the kind of kaleidoscopic magnifying glass of altered states, an encounter with kind of like the head of the hive or the, uh, the, the archetypal grasshopper or whatever it may be can become like, you know, we tend to personify and anthropomorphize the anthropic <laughs> realms even. Yes. So, uh, so like, th- I think that's kind of what what's happening there. Like, maybe there is, because I do have a connection with the grasshopper and the mantis realm on a very practical level. Like, I've just had, like, cool, interesting encounters yeah. and exchanges with them. And no, apps. <laughs> I could just let you go and just listen this whole time. So I mean, and there's like that, I, I want I want you to like. <laughs> no, we'll interact here. They're, 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 this is this will be good. There, I've already had like four things that I lost that I'm going to probably go back to, and it won't make uh, much cohesive sense, but it'll be a lot of fun. So, but first, what you just said made me think of something I've been thinking about a lot as far as the way we picture ourselves in nature. And it goes back to that Grant Morrison conversation that you've spoken about and we've kind of talked about offline that he did at a DisinfoCon. And I'm, I, part of it, he makes this point that 
people see us as not a part of nature, that nature is antagonistic, but really we are nature and everything that we create is a part of nature. So cities are nature, skyscrapers are nature, the atom bomb is nature. Like everything is an expression of nature. So you either trust nature or you don't. And I think that's like so it's something I forget sometimes. That's a really interesting way. I, I love little thought experiments. And I think that's a really interesting way to view our place in this like giant ecosystem. Because I think nature plays a large role in all of this, that kind of getting comfortable with sitting in that big mystery. You know, I, I think that's a big part of being an artist is we sit down at a blank thing, whether it's a canvas or a songbook or a piece of paper, and we have to be comfortable in that mystery and a way to get comfortable in that mystery is like getting comfortable standing in the middle of the woods and being you know okay out there or looking up in the big starry sky again and being like oh shit we're really small but that's okay and good i think all of that is kind of getting comfortable in the mystery and yeah i think remembering that we're part of nature and not a part from nature is right, kind of right. important in that yeah i mean there's a lot of things I I also see like a bunch of a constellation of threads I can follow there. I'm trying to organize them in my mind is the best way to tackle <laughs> them. Um, first thing that came up is George Carlin's bit about, you know, why are we here? Maybe it's because nature wanted plastic. And so we are the <laughs> tool by which it creates plastic. Yes. Like nature just wanted plastic. Nature wanted the atom bomb. So in a sense, it's like, okay, so we are the self-aware element within the mind of nature but then we are also a proponent of its self-hatred in how we <laughs> treat ourselves you know or treat our larger mm -hmm. selves mm -hmm. and then okay so we want to trust nature which i i want to trust nature i want to trust its processes but that doesn't mean that there isn't also uh, an abuse abusive or invasive element in there and that nature we yeah. shouldn't idolize it in a kind of like you know <laughs> Remember that Simpson episode with the deer? And he's like, oh, these deer, the deer tried to eat me. What, those deer? <laughs> it's like that nature bites back, you know? I, uh, yes, yes. So as you, as you may have gleaned from some of my podcast episodes, I lived in the jungle in Mexico for the last almost two years. And I finally, uh, it made it as clear that it wanted me to leave as that it made clear that it wanted me to be there. And it made this clear by complete boundary dissolution, which is to say... I got infected with leishmaniasis, which is a flesh-eating parasitic uh, infection, basically. Like a flesh-eating, single-cellular flesh-eating parasite was deposited into my cells by a tiny gnat, by a uh, wow. mosca chiclera, which is a, uh, a sand fly, about a quarter of the size of a mosquito. I got bit on the hand. I got bit on the cheek. You can, you can see mm -hmm. it right here. Um, then I, I went through an arduous process of trying to get it healed through like natural remedies. Again, like trusting nature and trusting its ambassadors uh, of the Maya tribes, allegedly. Uh, that didn't work out. So then I went the Western medicinal route of getting antimonies pumped into my system. I like to joke that, you know, first of all, Leishmania sounds like leather daddy territory, right? It's like, tonight, <laughs> one night only, Leishmania. Yeah. <laughs> parasites unleashed and then um the other side of it is that i got my western medicinal treatment uh intramuscular injections during pride month so i like to say i got 20 pricks in the butt during pride month <laughs> um 
So in the end, now the the parasites uh, supposedly have left my system, but um, it's been a month and a half and the skin is very slow to heal and it doesn't look good. So I'm like in this liminal state where I don't really have a good reference to what's happening with me. So I am kind of like, again, still in that liminal, like mid-transformation stage. And then while I was in the jungle, I wrote this book of uh, artwork and wordplay that's called Impatient Transformations. And now that I'm in an impatient transformation, I'm like, the next book I'm writing is $10 million, peace of mind, (laughs) serenity, and safety. (laughs) It's going to be a real Exactly. (laughs) Which also brings us back to that that kind of like sigil reality, right? Grant Morrison. uh, Grant Morrison thing where it's like, you know, the the cave art that they painted, it wasn't necessarily the residue of the day and the bisons that they had seen, but they were projecting towards the hunt of the next day and their desired intent that they were trying to magnetize towards them. <laughs> That's beautiful. So beautiful. I've listened to that so many times recently because I'm doing a little comic interpretation, mainly because I want to digest it in a different way. Like, you know, the difference between listening to a book and reading a book when you can kind of like... <laughs> physically hold something and like you can kind of mark it up and kind of destroy it to kind of you you can't do that with like youtube speeches so the way that i'm trying to do that is by drawing it and ingesting it in a different way it's really cool Um, and and i love breaking down those bigger talks also to kind of like create a lure that allures outsiders to come check that out yeah yeah. There's so many ideas in there that he covers so frantically. It's like hard to pick up on different tracks. And as I get to different pieces, little life synchronicities happen for me. Like when he just he just mentions really quickly, it's like 10 seconds about Jane's in the bicameral mind. And just him mentioning that made me be like, ooh, I forgot that was even an idea and a thing. And that like I started thinking about it more. And then you popped back on my radar. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is like all of the there's a whole episode i've re-listened to that and it's beautiful and it's just like these little i feel like certain people are meant to spread certain ideas and i think that's a big part of what you're doing is spreading that bicameral idea because even i don't know how much that played a role in i haven't heard your where the road go uh podcast but since you were on that podcast i'm in a little group chat with a lot of those folks and they've been talking about Jane's and like that how important language is and how language defines reality essentially which again goes back to Grant Morrison and essentially everything I love is that we can create and shape our own stuff and like language is that tool like from and so those threads where everybody identifies it from McKenna to uh, Morrison to you know way back before then like Osman Austin Spare and all the like you know but way before that like I think those threads are so important to follow and have people be champions of different kind of aspects of those threads is really important and I love that you have been such a proponent of this bicameral mind and I guess this is a great opportunity to just talk about that a little bit if that's cool sure yeah so I did bring it up on uh, where did the road go? And I'm always kind of reluctant to bring it up because it's such a can of worms. Like it really, <laughs> there's so much nuance in it and even, and so much like um, treacherous terrain where it becomes very easy to misunderstand uh, mm-hmm. ideas within this this kind of manifold theory. Um, and so we touched onto it there. And then, uh, and then we kind of put it away. It was just kind of like we opened it up and then we closed it up because it's like it's too big of a can of worms. Um, but we can get into it a little bit here. I know that McKenna well, is also very influenced by Julian Jaynes as well. Yes. It really is like, and it's also something that I've wanted to do similar to what you're doing right now with um, the Grant Morrison speech. It's something that I've wanted to do for 
uh, Julian James's theory, like to break it down into almost kind of like bite-sized, memorable instances with, you know, I've created some That'd of my own so useful. to better understand uh, some of these themes. So to kind of like non-specifically or non-chronologically get into some aspects of the theory in regards to what you just said so that we stay on track in this, this thread and this yarn that we're weaving together. <laughs> um, the idea of going into the mystery as an artist and the familiarity of language, right, as, to, as a way to mask the alien is, is very much akin to James's idea of understanding something. So James said that in order to understand something, understanding is the feeling of familiarity. So to understand it, we replace the actuality with something that we are more familiar with. This is the nature of metaphor. It's almost like that Indiana Jones, you know, where he like takes the one piece and puts another piece there, but the other piece isn't quite weighed the same. So then the philosopher's boulder comes rolling after him. Uh, but so the way that I phrased this idea and the thing that we usually replace something with is a word, which is something that we made up, uh, but it stands in for the thing and then we're satisfied with it. We understand it. That is a peacock. I understand. <laughs> strip the word away and then, you know, McKenna has a whole bit about this too. Like you strip away the word bird and suddenly the child is faced with the like iridescent plumage of this magnificent being and then the mother comes into the room and goes, that's a bird, you know, and like... <laughs> shrinks down to this one yes. and so to be aware of this already that there is this kind of uh, supplanting that happens in understanding uh, I think is really pivotal because that's what the artist does the artist whatever medium it is you go into the mystery into the unspeakable unnameable unquantifiable ungoogleable territory <laughs> and you pave a path based on language whether that's words images, brushstrokes, dance, architecture, whatever it may be, you pave this kind of pattern through which to perceive and navigate this inner world. So the way that I've termed this Jamesian idea is that consciousness is a soy milky way for the galactose intolerant. So we that's beautiful. Therefore, we have replaced the Milky Way with something that is more easily digestible for those who are yes, those intolerant. Um, so this this gets kind of touches onto the basis of, and this is where the biggest misunderstandings happen when it comes to understanding Jane's is is the word consciousness, because yeah. it's a word that's used to describe so many different things and often very ill-defined and non-specific. So generally nowadays in like um, kind of neuroscientific circles or new age circles, the word consciousness, the C word gets thrown around <laughs> willy nilly and haphazardly without standing still long enough to define it. Uh, Jane's took about 60 pages to craft his definition, very narrow definition of what he means when he speaks of consciousness. So like the Julian Jane Society, they often will refer to it as Janesian consciousness, so as to set it aside from the regular ideas of consciousness. Yeah. Regular ideas of consciousness in colloquial use are mostly, we're talking about sense perception, you know? Mm. Like everything is conscious, consciousness precedes everything. Okay, now what, where, where is the unconscious in that? Where is the subconscious in that? Are you right now conscious of the chair that you're sitting on? Well, now you are, 
because yeah. you've just I've just brought your awareness to it, and now you can feel kind of this like custom language paving this path of qualia onto it. Maybe you're describing like the pressure of the wood of your seat against the the bone, uh, you know, poking through the the cushion of your tushy, you know, um, <laughs> or maybe it's not even in language, but you notice this, like, for instance, I'm riding the subway, I'm scanning the, the, the gallery of faces sitting opposite me. And if I allow my attention to press upon that and prompt descriptions, suddenly there is a narratization that takes place. If I look up at the uh, subway stop and what's coming up ahead, there is a spatialization of time that takes place. So like these, these are some of the attributes of consciousness and, and basically the way that uh, Jane's defined it. And again, like this is very haphazard how I'm like laying this out. So I highly recommend anybody that's interested in this. I'll link this. the episode that you please, did with, please. I can't remember his name, but he's the Marcel head or Housen. the... Yeah, he's yes. the founder yeah. of the Julian Jane yeah. Society. And then also I highly recommend, like check out Jane's book. Like the best way to, is just from the, <laughs> from the horse's mouth, from the source's mouth. And the Julian Jane Society has put out a number of books that work really well at further distilling and clarifying these ideas. But in a nutshell, Jane's says that what he calls consciousness is that which is introspectable. It's kind of like your subjective interiority. And it is a dense term right here, metaphor generated model of the world. Okay. What does that mean? Metaphor generated. So the idea here is that as language evolved, so we're animals, right? We're talking animals starts off with some grunts, maybe that means there's a, there's a tiger over there, you know, The tiger starts coming closer, it becomes, you know, like the inflections change, which create like a sense of depth, distance, urgency. As language evolves, we get more signifiers for different things in the behavioral, physical behavioral world. But as these metaphors complexify, it builds a model, an interior space, a mind space. We're all familiar with this. You close your eyes, you can think. You can think of what's to come. You can think of what's behind. Even as we're talking now, maybe your mind slips a little bit from the conversation and is is thinking about things in the private theater of your mind. That's consciousness. That's what we're talking about is consciousness. When you're driving, you're not conscious of your driving. Some part of you is, but that's what we would call the unconscious or what I would call the illuminated unconscious because it's illuminated in its own right. It's just that we have this little spotlight that we value more, which spotlights our conscious, inner, subjective, introspectable experience. So I think that what people are talking about a lot of times when they're talking about consciousness or consciousness preceding all physical existence is they're talking about what I would call the unconscious or the illuminated unconscious. They're talking about that, but they're not distinguishing that from this metaphor-generated model, which is based on advanced metaphorical descriptors of the physical behavioral world which create a metaphorical space in which dwells an analog i or a metaphor me which is to say a metaphorical self which we also easily confuse with who we actually are like we are humans of action that is who we really are this is not a flesh suit that we're wearing this is not an adornment this is what we are we are people beings of action but we are also beings of thought. This is the cogito ergo sum, right? I think, therefore I am. Eh, yeah. You think, therefore you are thinking. 
<laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. I think that interplay right there between the physicality and the spirituality, that is this what Doug Rushkoff likes to say is the squishiness that makes humans magic. It's that constant dichotomy and that paradox that we live between that allows for beautiful things like the imagination and that metaphorical that metaphorical that metaphorical system to kind of bloom and really become what it is because i mean when you're talking about this stuff one of the things that gets me really excited about it is how if we follow that train of thought every culture has its own beautiful depiction and divination of consciousness because their languages are different so i like that would have to have an impact and then beyond just language as words the way that art grows their own languages, like the comic book language is very near and dear to me. And I think there's something really beautiful and special about that sequential form of art that allows for these very uh, unique, numinous experiences from Grant Morrison's experiences to people like uh, Barry Windsor Smith, who was the creator, the first illustrator of Conan. And uh, mm. Dr. Jeffrey Kripal covers his story in Mutants and Mystics, which is a wonderful book that covers all kinds of different artists, uh, different numinous experiences and such but essentially Barry Windsor Smith has these precognitive experiences where he loses hours at the drawing table and wakes up in this feverish dream and he sees these very detailed depictions of scenes that come true years later in his life and he thinks he's going crazy and all this stuff he actually he starts his journey as Barry Smith and then he has these experiences with what he calls the void that tells him that we're all one and we're all connected by something and we're all part of this giant tapestry and he changes his name to Barry Windsor Smith and he starts incorporating these ideas in his artwork so he's like transformed by these like a numinous experience he's having at the drawing table and you can find those stories in a lot of different comic artists from alan moore to grant moore there's just this thread of weird stuff in comics and i think every art has that thread i think every art is a, i re-listened to you and uh, eric wargo speak earlier and i love the idea that ev that all art is precognitive and all creativity is this kind of all, all expression even is is prophetic in a way like right now as you're starting to speak you don't necessarily know how the words are going to assemble themselves but there's this self-assembling quality where we just we dive into the mystery and we trust that the words will form a train of thought ahead of us <laughs> so we're always kind of a step ahead laying out the tracks so that we and sometimes we stumble or st stutter you know like <laughs> that oh. can also happen <laughs> but that can also be part of the dance if you can manage your expectations of how things are supposed to go which is yeah. funny I, I actually met douglas rushkoff yesterday i went to see really? him and daniel pinchbeck talk and i i got to uh Right on his way out, I got to like exchange a couple of words with him. Um, That's but he so was very, cool. He was very spry. He's he's great. Um, he's been a huge influence on me and somebody that pops up. Like he's one of those dudes like Mitch Horowitz that I wouldn't feel weird just emailing and being like, "Hi, would you like to talk to me? I would love to talk to you." Just because you know, people have time is time and people it's tough mm -hmm. but he's one of those people that keeps popping up in my periphery where i'm like i'm just waiting for that one little more universal push because one of the things that i love about i listen to his podcast pretty regularly almost weekly and he has been talking more than ever about leaning into uh language as a magical system and synchronicities mm. and looking at the world more playfully and that that's a great transition to one of the things I love about your work and your ideas is leaning into play and how 
how much we forget how important playfulness is in the scope of everything from, you know, whether it's spirituality or talking about big things like consciousness, there should be a way to do this stuff with a, with, I, I was raised on the Simpsons and if it's not funny, it's worthless. It's my brain, you know, like if it, yeah. it, it needs that humor to be communicated in a lot of ways, these big, these big things. And I think a lot of the times, even listening to like, religious scholars and people that are really into these sacred texts, they'll be like, the one thing that will never translate is the humor that was originally in these texts. Mm. Like these things were jokes, essentially, a lot of the time that will never translate <laughs> through the yeah. ages. But can you talk a little bit about the importance of the absurd or the humor in your work and what you do? Yeah, it's funny that we um, we build our laws out of breakable materials. Uh, and I think that universal laws or the laws of mind, they should at least be bendable, you know, because we talk about yeah. mind bending and things like that. So I think humor, you know, of course, it's like it's playing on expectations is one thing. But the other thing is it's also the kind of like bending things out of proportion yeah. uh, that that makes us in a way like if it's wordplay or, or which it usually is, um, it's something that makes us all of a sudden aware of the malleability of the medium in which we communicate and perceive. So I feel like there should be a kind of durability in that. And it also, it's, you know, I like humor that's in a sense self-deprecating or, um, cause, cause it, you know, it helps you take yourself less seriously. Like Nietzsche had some saying that a philosopher is useless unless he knows how to dance because that's, you know, that's the philosophy in practice. It's like you can talk about it and think about it all you want, but can you, again, like, can you put it into action? Because that's the actuality. I think, therefore, I am thinking. <laughs> I dance, therefore, I am. You know, like like that Absolutely. kind of thing. Um, I had another thought about what you were talking about, the, the Conan illustrator. First of all, Douglas Rushkoff, I haven't read any of his work. I've heard him on a few podcasts and things. I like his uh, his zeal. And his zeal, zeal is also the Dutch word for soul. So I have to say, I like his zeal. Oh, that's and his awesome. Soul. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's beautiful. Uh, he, he wrote a um, graphic novel, which is actually, I asked him about that. I was like, didn't you write like a graphic novel about the Exodus or something like 40 years, Jews in the desert? Mm -hmm. And he, he said he did, and it's actually available online. You can download it. So I'm going to check into that. And maybe that is the in for you to invite him is if you can see his you know, kind of graphic novelization and then approach him go. from this point of view of like, hey, I've been doing this Grant Morrison illustrated thing. Like, I'd love to talk to you. Um, but this thing Absolutely. you talked about with the, the Conan illustrator and this lost time and that sort of thing, like I think of that, something that's always interested me is the fugue state, the psychogenic yeah. fugue, uh, which is a state, it's a psychological state. Nowadays, it's called a dissociative fugue. It's where somebody takes leave of their identity. There's lost time and then they return to themselves and all of a sudden they, they've racked up their credit card bills or whatever it may be and <laughs> wreaked havoc in the meantime from this dissociative state where they became somebody else this is also the basis of one of my favorite films uh, lost highway by david lynch yeah absolutely so this is something that's been interesting to me and um this plays into to this like uh jane zian idea and and my kind of um interest in the demonic realms or the realms of the genius, the daemon, the dana, the muse, like these kinds of like um, uh, spirits that take over or that assist the creative process. Um, there's a quote. Let me pull it up here. This was in uh, Julian Jane Society's most recent book 
called Conversations on Consciousness in the Bicameral Mind, where there's a great essay, or not essay even, it's like an interview or a, a conversation that they have with Ted Remington, who is this um, rhetorician. And he says, basically, in the bicameral age, actions and one's sense of self were the same thing. And only with the advent of consciousness, in James's strong sense of the term, were you able to separate those two. And so, for me, um, I'm sure you listened to the Anthony Peake episode that I did, which starts with this oh, like 45-minute yeah. introduction where I'm talking about this kind of breakthrough experience where I learned to quote-unquote channel, you know, where I learned to get out of my way, go step into the fugue state, if you will, and allow this work to be birthed through me and then had the sense of like, because the symbolism as I then perceived it within this piece that had just poured out of me was so pertinent to the moment of creation that I felt like this had always existed in some, you know, um, repository vault in eternity and I had somehow liberated it into time and this is the the goal yeah. of the artist is to the visionary must drink of the the retrocausally <laughs> retrocausal streams melted from the ice crystals of the future and then profess that essence into existence or this kind of like poetic jarbling and warbling and rambling and scrambling <laughs> um but but what I the way I've tried to over time ground that out and get a better sense of what's going on is I came up with this term possessed by process. So you become so engulfed and absorbed in the process of it that it's no longer you pushing a paintbrush around to craft this image. It is this image moving your hand in order for it to be called into existence. So you are part of this process now. And so I like yeah. this term instead of like, I am a genius or, or something like that. It's like, I'm with genius, just like the shirt. I'm yeah. with stupid. I'm with genius. <laughs> it's like the, there is genius comes from, from the idea of generation, you know, to like to generate, to bring into existence. And I like how the sound of it, genius, the ius, has this kind of like anomanopoetic sense of a DNA, a genetic mm -hmm. spiral, genius. So it's like the the genie in the gene pool who comes and, and whispers to you and through you in these moments when we lose time and gain our sense of self. And then as we return from the fugue state, there is something there waiting for us that we can, a part of ourselves that, you know, almost like Eve from the rib of Adam, the, mm -hmm. the, the apple of our eye, the fruit of our loins, of our libido, you know, the idea that the libido is the creative force behind yes. our creative efforts that now we get to marvel at that as something separate from ourselves that shows us something about ourselves once again. That's beautiful. It's like an artifact that we brought back from that space. That is artifact. Like, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I, I think there's so much there that I really love. And the connection between time and creativity is so important. And I, I've heard there's another Grant Morrison talk where he speaks about a different um, numinous experience he has with non-human uh, entities. And essentially they communicate to him uh, something similar in the first one that he covers in Kathmandu, but essentially they communicate to him that they are interacting with him 
so that they can create because they live outside of time and space and you can't create without time and why humans are special is like we're their little art farm and they come here to grow ideas and to grow art and that's what we're doing and that is such a kind of uh, consistent message you hear from different people that touch these little bits of uh, non-reality or more reality depending on how you want to look at it and uh, I think that's so uh, easily we can touch that in our own lives by just losing yourself in drawing or playing guitar or all like there's just this connection between the two things and i think a lot about how time is like i love the idea of retrocausation and these things that uh, eric wargo goes into or like professor daryl bim's work that mitch horowitz covers where you know they can prove there's a statistical change in uh essentially looking at something you've done previously will affect the way that you did it in the past. And now there's like a lot of statics or statics <laughs> stats and such that are aligning with these things that it's cool to see the science and the weird thinking kind of align and come together in that way. But I okay. think there's uh, like some practical implications from playing with those ideas that are really fun and something that, you know, people that don't get paid to sit at a drawing table all the time or like get to live in a fully creative life, get to experience as much. So I, I just kind of would love to hear more of your thoughts about time and creativity and how the, like if we're experiencing this linear time purposefully to make these creations, I guess is a way to uh, yeah. sum that up. <laughs> so, so the most famous philosopher of all time, Plato, is like, no, that's Plato. That's he's named after the. <laughs> The, the malleability of the moment, the the, yes. the silly putty of the mimicrous mind. And he once said that, um, what did he say? Time is the moving image of eternity, which is such a beautiful way to think of it. You know, I think of time as like the zoetrope to give an antiquated technological metaphor, because it seems like the technologies kind of uh, set the precedent of how we look at these things. Right. So I like to look back a few steps from where we are now because the zoetrope is such a beautiful instrument it's basically uh, early cinema where you have like a rotating platform with different images different photographs or drawings one frame apart and as it's set into motion it's set into motion into animation (laughs) so these are the early animating cells and i've always wondered you know why don't we have more zoetropic highways this would be the thing of the future great for advertisement or in subways you know as you're driving around the side of the road is animating these advertisements yes. and even if it creates an accident because of it that's you know it's great pr still the uh, the downy <laughs> commercial created the three car pileup on the 101 you know like um yeah please nobody that's listening to this that's in advertising uh, follow my lead please don't this is just play this is again like uh, yeah. <laughs> a way for me to illustrate liberated play and the play of ideas that shouldn't like somebody's like, hmm, that's a great idea. A three car pile of advertisement. This. Yes. <laughs> Die for our brand. You know, let's not, let's not do that. <laughs> um, so I like this idea that you put forth there about, um, artists, the kind of like the smuggling of hyper objects, interdimensional hyper objects across these barriers. And then there's also the idea of like an egregore or a tulpa, this kind of like Mm -hmm. thought form that's not real, but that becomes real when you make a mark of its existence upon the world. Um, So like, you know, the entities that I'm not familiar with that second talk that you mentioned, but I know that he talked about it in the disinformation or misinformation talk as well. um, Grant Morrison did about these entities um, and the art farm idea, which I love that. 
So let's say these entities aren't real, right? Like let, whatever real means. Let's say that they yeah. are um, uh, abiogenetic uh, apparitions of your inner psyche, you know, like that, that come to the forefront and represent themselves as other, as separate entities. And they're telling you, do this, do this, make this art, something like that. Muses, daemons, geniuses, genies, whatever they may be. By making a mark out of that, now there is evidence of their existence in the world. Now they have a reference point, um, almost like there's an offering placed on the altar. And altar, of course, also means other. So now here we have an, an offering table for the other where we can make offerings to reify, if not deify, their existence which is a powerful concept, you know? And that's also when you yeah. think about this Jainsian notion of a metaphoric mind space or of our sense of self, our avatar, as the body's hallucination of itself, the ego, right? Mm -hmm. The ego doesn't exist, but it does, not, it does not want to not exist, and it will do everything <laughs> it can uh, to try to still the stream of time because it gets buried in time. Because the yeah. ego is a still image superimposed on a moving picture. So, you know, it's a still frame in the zoetrope. So it wants, it wants the attention. So what happens is we start printing out our kind of like metaphor-generated models of the world. Uh, and that's what civilization is. That's what the, the human theater is, is we're living in these conceptions. Like there's a lot of talk nowadays about like uh, gender as a social construct. And of course... We're talking about gender roles. This is role play. And there's nothing, you know, that, that doesn't make it any, any less or more real because that's what we do as humans. We play out fictions. We play out roles. And that is our reality. Like another, just like consciousness becomes a conscious mess when we talk about it without defining it. So also the world or reality or these kinds of words. Like when Terence McKenna says, the world is made of words. And if you know the words the world is made of, then you can make it whatever you want. And the new age goes, yeah, you create your own reality. But it's like, what was he talking about when he said the world? Did words create the natural world or is the natural world made out of a living language or logos that precedes the word? So what is the world he's talking about? I think he's talking about the world of human artifice, mm -hmm. the world that we've created, yes. which, you know, these buildings aren't made of words, but words mediated yes. their creation, the infrastructure on which these creations were actualized wrote on the infrastructure of language mm -hmm. and so in that sense indirect we can say the world of human artifacts is indirectly made of words and if you can think of the words that can mediate the creation of a secondary world second to nature then you can make of that world whatever you want whatever you wish so long as it is in accordance with the wills and whims of other humans and non-human entities which is not as pithy and meme worthy 
but, but it's you know so good it's so good that is it's beautiful and mckenna was the first person actually a combination of mckenna and douglas washkoff were the first people to really get me into language in general and there's the one talk where mckenna talks about how you know human brains existed for a long time before language existed and that language was a tool a technology that comes in and changes everything but there's going to be a point where language changes and that technology upgrades and it's going to go past words and be this instant communication thing and that's always fascinated the connection between that and the creative world has always fascinated it to fascinated me like what does creativity look like in a world beyond language and maybe that's just right. a silly thing to think about but that's always been something that when i listen to that talk pops into my head there is i mean language is changing and the way first of all i'm gonna pull out my book here because i have a few little quotes i can pull out of that exactly of on this topic wonderful so this is <laughs> You're prepared this is, yeah this is impatient transformations and there's one of the last kind of poems in there is called greatest hits and each hit is like a different substance but they're not always like psychoactive substances in the sense that we think so i'm just going to read these to you and then we're going to uh isolate the one that i'm i'm referring to here which you'll you'll pick up on it greatest hits i took a hit of tba got stranded in my dna still don't know what i took today perhaps i'll find out yesterday I took a hit of GPS, got lost within the endlessness, gave up the compass in my chest, and oriented to the west. I took a hit of ABC, forever changed reality, alpha diabetically, I miss the void abysmally. I took a hit of LSD, envisioned what we're yet to be, approximate infinity with aid of new technology. I took a hit of DMT, got swallowed by geometry, microscopic kaleidoscopy that fueled my creativity. I took a hit of DSL, dialed up out of matter's hell, much faster than with rotary, virtually heavenly. So first of all, the hit of ABC, that's what we're talking about, right? The yes. way the alphabet forever changed reality because the abyss was basically... We are all complicit in the crime of creation that we robbed the void of its emptiness by filling it full of sounds, sound and fury, you know, yes, <laughs> full yes. of full of words and descriptors <laughs> and, and specificity. Um, and then there's, you know, the language is changing. First of all, it changed when the written word came in. And this is also a big part of Julian James's notion. So as I touched on to briefly without explaining earlier, he talks about the bicameral era which is kind of the era before we became, as I term it, schizovereign entities. Before we, uh, we have this, this consciousness that we reign over reclusively alone, you know, our, our metaphor, me, our analog, I, the inner mind space in which we get to look ahead to the future, back into the past, solve problems, narratize, spatialize, all this kind of stuff. So in the previous iteration before this space was not that it's completed, but for all, for lack of a better word, completed. There was the bicameral era, which is to say the two-chambered era of the two-chambered mind, where the one side of the brain 
would take the guise of a god or an overseer or a king or a parent or somebody up in the hallucinated hierarchy and at crucial moments would bark orders across the corpus callosum that separates the two sides of the brain and the man of action or woman of action could do nothing but to obey this voice because to obey comes from the, I think, French or Latin, obodir, which means to lend ear to. And the ear is a receptive organ. You can't really close it, let alone if the voice is not a real voice, but a, a spectral hallucination, an auditory hallucination. And so the transition from where the bicameral mind breaks down, so where a human, almost like a noble automaton, as he puts it, this kind of like talking animal, noble talking animal, um, has this command system, this, this admonitory control system built into the brain, which organizes the structures, the society. But as the society becomes bigger and bigger, the bicameral mind breaks down because it can no longer organize this large of a scope, right? Yeah. So what happens is with the advent of the written word, um, now that voice is etched into tablets, or scrolls and scriptures. And so now there is a moment of pause between the voice being read and heard in the mind and obeying it. So there's now this like wiggle room within that. And the control system becomes, you know, this is why we have signs all over the place, right? In a, in a city, there's all these different, the control system is still in place, but it's now, um, kind of prosthetically mediated outside of us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with the printing press, like, and literacy, like all of this changes. Like, I think that literacy, the ink was still wet and it created a stain on the brain, which then created a kind of severed metaphoric voice. When you're reading tiny little inked scribbles off a page, a voice, seemingly a ghostly voice that sounds maybe like your own voice, speaks in your in the silence of your mind without a tongue or anything like that this is you know this is what then we associate with uh, with a ghost it's it's yeah. funny you know uh, in the netherlands we're a mindless people we don't have a word for mind all the words that stand in for mind are ghost spirit head brain thoughts but there is no such thing as like wow. mind so we're mindless That's we're beautiful. mindless people um <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh no, you go ahead. You you were okay. about to go into yeah, something. So, I don't want to interrupt. So the printing press obviously like made a big shift in the mind field. And then now we're kind of returning to this oratory realm. Like right now we're doing a podcast, yeah. a very popular medium. People like listening to audiobooks more than they have time to read. So we're we are in a sense regressing to like language becomes like shorthand as well, you know, like if you for real, for real, you know, on God, you know, like we get all these like little <laughs> memified phrases that stand in for like actual nuanced conversations. But I think maybe that moves us back towards a kind of um, a sort of pseudo telepathy. And there's a piece in here that if you'll grace me, I will read it to you. I hope it's not I would love too, it. too long. It's kind of like a little micro essay, but it's very um, in tune with this, this, conversation if i can find it here here it is it's called the stenographic stone age there is the parable of analogy in buddhist lore regarding the fabled finger pointing at the moon the parable is exemplary of language signified by the literal finger pointing and its significance what the finger is pointing at the moon and how 
we often, in common confusion, gaze at the finger rather than following the finger's trajectory to the object it attempts to bring to our attention. It's similar to the metaphor of eating paper currency, taking the medium literally and confusing the means for its end. But what is never addressed in the Buddhist parable is that the moon itself is not the be-all and end-all, for the moon itself is a signifier of the sun, a nightlight that reminds us of daytime. Now, long before history, before we learned to speak, humans stared directly into the sun. By this I mean to propose that we were able to communicate meanings between minds, unmediated by symbol systems such as fingers, digital analogy, and moons, reflective analogy, and their miscommunicative contortions and distortions. We were able to simply absorb and transmit noetic luminosity with telepathic fluidity the way a mother communicates with her offspring, biological, molecular telepathy, together as one in a unified field of fields. Unified field of fields. Perhaps the precursor to language, those first primal caveman grunts erupting from the earliest humans pointing at the moon to communicate the sun, could be considered a sort of shorthand that reaches for lengthier verbal expressions to be worked out in later evolutionary drafts, abbreviations for what was to follow and unfurl like those little sponges that expand into dinosaurs when watered. I call this era the Stenographic Stone Age and suggest that perhaps the multisyllabic eloquence that developed in the centuries to follow began to weigh heavy on the tongue over time, as it tirelessly labored through elaborate lingual labyrinths in order to arrive at a communicative conclusion. Is it any surprise that abbreviations and acronyms came back into play, prevailing once again in modern communicative modalities, IRL or whatever's IDK? Then I have a little image of um, Gone with the Wind, Clark Gable, and it says TBH Bay IDGAF. To be honest, Bay, I don't give a fuck. I'm proposing, the, which I, li I lifted that meme and I recreated it so that I didn't literally lift it, but I cannot take our, yeah. know, credit for that, for the joke itself, just in context. I'm proposing the poetic notion that language was a bridge we built between minds while we were learning to walk on water, a bridge that, it seems, we are slowly burning behind us. Yet, we are also lighting our way with the bridges we burn, as the saying goes. Language is a telepathic technology, but perhaps we're gradually regressing back to that initial mode, if there ever was one to begin with, as similarly the elderly begin again to resemble and reenact modes of infancy later in life. We could consider language to have been a technological crutch, a learning tool that conditioned our neural pathways to read between the lines. And now that we're starting to catch each other's subliminal drift, we can allow the technological support structure to fall away. It all appears to be part of a cyclical backtrack, wherein we venture through the complexifying chaos and cacophony of inventive epiphany, towards the highly organized source of self-contained silence and simplicity. Drop a syllable here, omit an entire word there, fill the absence with a suggested apostrophe, and no one will notice that you aren't speaking full sentences anymore. And before you know it, we'll willfully and naturally fill in the and catch each other's drifts as we drift further down the meme stream that flows through this cultural rift on the unassuming raft that is our communicative craft towards the ocean of our actuation. And when that primal shorthand 
imbued with digital extensions, finally fingers the moon when our big mouths catch up to our big ideas, we may pop that expansive balloon and hopefully we'll all catch our breath. Wow, that was beautiful. So good. Is that book available? Can I, can I, uh, it is. Yeah. There's, there's only 300 copies in existence. They're hand numbered. Um, and there's still a few of them left. So anybody that hears this, including yourself, uh, you can go to the ungoogleable.com and find it in the book section, as well as my first book, which was illustrated by 35 separate artists. Um, there's still a few copies of that as well. Cool. I'll link that for sure because that's more people should yeah. have that. They should be all gone now. That's uh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Dude. Thank you so that much for letting is... me letting me read that on air too. I know that took up a little bit of airtime, but no, I think it was very all. relevant I'm... to what you were asking. I thought the question uh, was really... already versed. Yes. <laughs> no. Man. It hit it perfect. It's like I asked it and you knew I asked it and you had that ready. That was beautiful. I Pre- I love precognitive it. Actually... questions, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it made me uh, think of something that I wanted to ask you or talk to you about when we were talking about language and Jane's and the, these whole, the way that language defines consciousness. And it, it kind of has to do with my kid, which the poem made me remind or reminded me because it has a line about the moon being a nightlight and my kid's got a moon nightlight. Yes. Like that's his main, main oh, his favorite thing to turn on. Yeah. So he loves that. But he has a um, articulation delay. He's been, you know, working on it. He's six now. And like, he's probably, I'd say 75% understandable to somebody who would just meet him off the street at this point. And that's with like a lot of speech therapy and stuff. So language has had a whole new meaning to me and thinking about how important it is and talking to these people that essentially are, you know, uh, they get paid to help kids discover their consciousness in a, in a weird way and the way that they interact and how much of it's so beyond just like mimicry and stuff like that. And I mean, not to go into a whole story, but my kid, he was right. Um, he was about three when COVID hit, he had just started preschool. We pulled him out and didn't like, we didn't do virtual preschool or anything. And when uh, we started getting him ready for kindergarten, we realized there was a big articulation delay. We had been going to speech therapy and they were like, this is a huge problem right now because a lot of speech and a lot of the way kids talk, especially in articulation, is peer-learned. And a lot of it comes from mm. that interaction with other kids. And since there was so much isolation, they didn't get that peer learning. So now there's this whole bottleneck. Wow. And yeah. that made me think of like how that affects these kids' consciousness and essentially the overall like world's consciousness. And I was talking to one of my favorite weird thinkers and I uh, I don't know what you would call him, essentially. His name's Johnny L. Tenney. He's very well known in the paranormal world, and he's just a beautiful thinker. And he was saying to me that, honestly, and he doesn't have kids, but he was like, I think about this new generation and I feel like they are a a new breed of humans that they are meant to be living longer and maybe spacefaring or like something in which they are going to be exploring new worlds, both inner and outer in a lot of ways. So there's going to be a lot of these things that have impacts like, you know, COVID and stuff like that, that are, you know, might there, the story is not yet written for us to see, but there's like these big implications from these things. But yeah, that's a long way of saying that, like seeing my kid grasp 
this articulation and being able to express himself more fully and the confidence that comes with like his imagination. He's always been a very imaginative kid, but his imagination has just opened up and boomed as he can articulate things. And it's just so cool to see that in action. And it resonated with me in a very different way, listening to the episode about the bicameral mind and everything, right. having that experience recently. And I don't know. I just kind of wanted his, to throw that out there. How does his, um, is it a speech impediment? Or is so it's not an impediment. It articulates. So it's uh, essentially he has trouble pronouncing certain sounds. So it kind of comes mm. across as like he knows what he's saying, but it just comes out very garbled. Like his tongue doesn't make the right movements to oh, pronounce so the sounds correctly. So um, at first they thought it was like the he needed to have his tongue snipped thing. That wasn't it. And Jesus. like there was a bunch of different things that like they went through. A lot of it has Science to do with for you. Oh, yeah. We just yeah. Need to cut off a little bit of it. <laughs> Oh, dude, having a kid is a wild experience as far as that, like, balancing science and, like, is that right? Is this cool? Like, you know, it's very... But essentially, like, they they don't have... There's one type of speech... and I'm not an expert in any of this, so yeah, I'm sure I'm wrong in certain ways. But there's one main type of thing that's a neurological speech uh, articulation that manifests in its way of an articulation delay. And he doesn't have that. So they say it's not a neurological thing, like uh, on paper, right? So they say it's a muscle twisting, thing. Tongue twisting exercises would help because that's what actors do a lot or public speakers. Yes. You know, Peter Piper picked some pickles, Dude, Sally by the Seashore. You nailed sort of it. Thing. That's when we found the speech therapist that we really vibed with, that was one of the big things. And also um, he started doing karate because they talk about core strength and how like our whole body Mm. strength helps with our speech and our articulation of things. And ever since he's started doing uh, martial arts and being more active in that way, it's definitely helped. And like, so it's definitely, it it took a minute to find the right person to like have that fit, but it is a whole body approach that like really seems to align. And, but it's been interesting also to see his interaction with his peers. Like, he right. is very confident when he's talking to other kids. And even though other kids don't always fully understand what he's saying, they just play along. It's always a yes end. And it's been really cool because I was a little worried with him starting kindergarten yeah. and stuff and like bullying. But it's been beautiful. And we're lucky he's in a public Montessori school. So he's in a very like a, you know forward thinking environment that normally we wouldn't be able to afford. But we got lucky with the school lottery thing and everything. So oh, cool. but his classmates and stuff. Yeah it was a big weight like having kids you don't think about any of that stuff until it's in front of you and you're like oh yeah this is the shit that sucks about like yeah Yeah. Um, but but yeah have you thought about that as far as like how those type of interactions with language can change the way people view themselves or the world around them or or is that something that james covers at all so james this is an important element also of understanding Jane's and his ideas of consciousness and how it, how it uh, originated in the breakdown of the bicameral mind is that consciousness is learned on the basis of language. It's not something that's like evolved in us over time, but it's learned, it's behavioral. And so you do actually get to see the child coming into consciousness, like learning, like building that inner metaphor generated model and, you know, its sense of self, its sense of time, its sense of the world, and, you know, its own sense of humor within that as well. Yeah. So I think that's that's, that's an important distinction, and it's something that people sometimes reactively 
want to kind of wipe off the table the idea that it's learned or that it's something that evolved 3,000 years ago or this kind of thing, but it's largely on the basis that they're still going off of their own definition or ill-defined definition of consciousness rather than really trying to understand what James is talking about and how this plays out. So I think that, I mean, it's first of all, it's amazing. I don't have children, but if I would have children, that would be like one of the most fun things to see in action. Um, yes. And uh, they talk about this in that most recent book, um, Conversations on Consciousness and the Bicameral Mind. They they get a lot more into this kind of like theory of mind and children forming and, and different uh, like neurodivergent, neurodiversity uh, instances where that is delayed or altered or, or mutated in some way. Uh, and it got me thinking a lot about people like Helen Keller, you know, who was, mm-hmm. I don't think she was born deaf. Was she deaf and blind and mute or just deaf and mute? I'm not, Either I way. think she was all of them. I'm not familiar enough yeah. to be honest. <laughs> but it just, it got me without looking too far into her story. It got yeah. me thinking about like, so how does somebody that is mute and deaf compose their metaphor generated model of the mind? Is it like, all like, you know, remember in, in the exactly. labyrinth, the like the hands, we're helping hands, you know, like all these like hand faces. Like, is that how yes. it, how their mind is made up or do they have the words in their heads and then they translate it like through lip reading or stuff like that? Mm-hmm. Um, like I grew up in front of the TV in the Netherlands with Dutch subtitles. So there is always this kind of like the subtlety and subtext of a subtitled reality. So I'm always... Metaphorically, this is not actually the way it manifests, but I'm always thinking on these different levels, right? Like there's the textual level, there's the auditory level, there's the mishears or dyslexity, as I call it, the kind of ecstatic mishear that becomes a creative Play-Doh of the present again. Um, So, yeah, I think all these things, I can't speak to the specifics of how it influences, but I think it makes us more interesting people when we become more aware of the ways in which we construct ourselves out of various languages, visual languages, sonic languages, modes of speech, modes of writing, modes of thinking, modes of embodiment, like you're saying, like the whole body thing as well. Um, so, I, yeah, I think the more we become aware of that, the less we are going to be restricted by our what I call self-imitating limitations because we have this, a sense of who we are and that limits us from who we are becoming because we are a process. Yes. We are a, a, we are the whole as zoetrope, yo, not some still <laughs> freight kind of focus on. Oh, dude, yes. We are you just gave me goosebumps. Like you, like one of the things that you have an ability to do is frame certain things positively that I think people have a negative knee-jerk reaction to in a way that resonates with me very well. And that's something I've thought about my son a bunch is how this gives him it's like he has a superpower almost to completely interact with the world in a different way and i've talked about this before to other parents and they look at me like i'm kind of crazy but i was like isn't it kind of sad to see them grow up and lose this specific interaction with the world and like it's not a one time that's the best or a best and less not as good it's this like each moment has this very specific relationship to the environment and like they there's no controlling it it gets lost like we die a million deaths throughout our lives in a bunch of metaphorical ways but that starts so young and as a parent it's almost like beautiful and heartbreaking to see at the same time and to touch on what you were saying as far as 
consciousness being developed. I've thought about this a lot because as a parent, like you get the kid and this is not, I'm very lucky. And I guess this this is probably a form of privilege, but like I had the experience where I had the kid, I touched the kid. I was like, Holy shit, this is it. I got the kid. I got the thing. This happened. (laughs) And like, I know that doesn't happen for everybody. (laughs) Yes, totally. But like the thing went off in the brain and it all was like, Oh, this is what it was all building up to. This is the thing. Mm -hmm. And you look, in the eyes of this thing that you just, you know, that was just birthed in this grotesque, horrible process that like has a whole bunch of exactly. like both, it was the, my first was an emergency C-section. There was nothing beautiful oh, wow. about like the whole oh, process wow, yeah. of like that up until holding the kid. Yeah. Lots also of terrifying horror for your partner. Uh, you oh, know, like, wait, way more so (laughs) way more so um but like holding that kid and looking in there there's something that is really beautiful that is magical for lack of a better word that's in there but i don't think it's that consciousness i don't i think it's like that that it's where they came from it's that void you're looking in it's life exactly and like life i think people confuse life and consciousness in a lot of ways and like exactly but yeah there's it's really beautiful this is is a very good point because that brings it down to the animal body and the animal expression of the human like people often think that this notion of you know like we are conscious and animals are not conscious that sort of thing that that's like somehow a hierarchical Mm -hmm. uh distinction but i don't think it is i mean the sense that animals don't have this consciousness this symbolical apprehension where they can like think a dream into the future or dream into the past or that sort of thing. That doesn't mean they don't have muscle memory or like memory stored in the body or that when they sleep, yes. their brains aren't simulating the twitchy pod running through the field trip, but they're not like when they're away, when your dog is away, it's not necessarily dreaming of the next time Todd is going to come in and give it its favorite <laughs> brand of dog food. But that doesn't, it's not a hierarchical apprehension, just like in the same way when your child is born and you see that light in, behind their eyes. I mean, that is that is like, you know, like I said, that's life incarnate. Yeah. And the the subjective consciousness is a way of that life limiting, constricting, and finding stylized expression. So we're stylized animals in that sense, like animals with some fictitious apprehension of ourselves that we get to exert upon the world but ultimately there's personality first which comes from the word persona right Mm -hmm. through sound so through sound the expression of an inner world or a way of being in the world expresses itself in the same way that animals have personality like i had a cat for about five years named fox who was my familiar like we were we had a rapport like there's i mean the the word soul is such a like also one of those terms there we we need to have like a three-hour conversation about that before we can like make any kind of assertions of what we're talking about because some people talk about the soul they're talking about this inner subjective consciousness or like the consciousness that lives on after death we're thinking it's this self-perception where it's like todd in a previous life was Napoleon, you know, like it's like, it doesn't work like that. Life incarnates all at once, past, present, future, eternity in motion. You are Napoleon right now in this extended now, but we're, you know, moving through time. So that's like uh, along different space time coordinates of actuation that that, but I was also Napoleon at that time. We, (laughs) we all were. And so 
this, uh, you know, that Vedanta idea of uh, what I call God as a DID deity, as a dissociative identity disordered deity. Yes. Where, you know, the entirety, life, God, the universe, whatever you want to call it, consciousness, if you want to go that route with it in that nonspecific, uh, it's a big everything sense. Yeah is, you know, lonely as the one and only. So it goes into a dissociative fugue state, fragmenting and replicating itself so as to communicate with itself across digital screens on podcasts, as listeners, as influences and influencers, and creates this this magic theater. Um, And this this is, I think, closer to the, the sense of how kind of like platonic idealists might look at the consciousness idea of like, it's all a big everything and it gets dissociated into different uh, specific expressions. But then the question becomes, by, but how? And that's where Jane's kind of comes in yeah. and says, on the basis of language, these, um, these distinctions are kind of um, solidified, even though totally. they're still fluid, still quite fluid. <laughs> but having that action point is really important. I mean, there's a lot of models of people that talk about consciousness that I do really like as like little thought experiments. Like, uh, again, Dr. Jeffrey Kripal talks a lot about dual aspect monism, where there's there's a one thing and we filter it into two, the material and the spiritual, and we're, we are the filter. And there's these things that sound beautiful, but I can't I can't put an action on there. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, like James is actually like applicable and like is something th- that you can really. I think really... it's on the basis of language that this dualism comes yes. about because we're using totally. our, our perceptive and communicative modality has built in dualism, black, white, mm-hmm. life, death. But then there's, you know, the notion and, and McKenna brought this up quite a bit of the coincidentia oppositorum. The conjunction of opposites. And so you get yes. titles like true hallucinations, you know, mm. that that and this is kind of like we're also kind of like my um, ontological juggling or, or uh, kind of lyrical malleability comes into play is that I'm constantly I'm not trying to dwell on one side or the other. I'm trying to weave them into some kind of non-dual coherence because yes. I'm aware of the mechanism by which this dualism comes into play. So like you can think of the mind as this is a Saul Williams quote, the mind is a prison or a prism, depending how you look. And if you think about that further, like the bars of the prison, which is funny because bars is also like a rap term, right? For like different, (laughs) different phrasings, different lengths of phrasings. And you can play music on those bars and liberate yourself from the seeming limitations you're in. But also it's a prism in the sense that the light of time shines through it and differentiates itself into a spectrum of differentiation. So there is this clear light of the void, if you want to call it that, that is, you know, the animation of life, and it filters itself through our, you know, seven-piece chakra suit and shines into the world as Roy G. Biv, you know? Like, now suddenly there there is the spectrum of differentiation, which is kind of beautiful that, like, uh, the LGBTQ plus Lebedikui plus has uh, <laughs> has the rainbow as their kind of their symbol for diversity and inclusivity, you know, because it's like mm-hmm. it's all part of the same beam of light shining Just into matter. Right. It makes so much sense. And actually, so one of the things I wanted to ask you is 
where does connection play into that? Like, do you subscribe to a, you know, we are connected by some sort of whether it is the soul or oversoul you've heard the group on consciousness. I know you and Eric Warco go into some really good stuff about that, but, but where do you stand as far as like conscious connection? If for lack of a better word to backtrack a little bit. Well, first of all, the term that comes to mind is like, that we forge connections, which is funny because the word forging also is like akin to forgery. So then is connection yes. a forgery? But <laughs> that, that makes me think of, of like Jordan Peterson idea of, um, he says like, well, I don't necessarily believe in God, but, you know, I go through our, throughout life as though he exists, you know, and it's like that, that kind of thing, like every, you know, that, um, I heart Huckabees, there's like, like everything yes. is connected. It's the blanket truth. And then this woman comes along and she's like, nothing is connected. Everything is, uh, <laughs> you know, everything is in, in, in shambles and in chaos. And Absolutely. it's like somewhere in between the two is the truth. And so mm-hmm. for me to act as though all things are connected and that, you know, I wish upon others what I wish upon myself. I wish them like a full, peaceful, rich life, rich in health and wealth and well-being and, and connection ultimately mm-hmm. to others. Um, so that's kind of how I move through life is as though everything were connected, as though everything yes. were a reflection of my inner state. So even when like the other day I put up some TikToks where I was just being a weirdo and then I put up the next TikTok in a different character, apologizing for being a weirdo and going back <laughs> into being a weirdo. And then another one where I'm yet again, another character talking about how I was just spirit possessed in the previous <laughs> one. So I take no responsibility for any of it. And then getting like some 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 trolls stopping by and leaving their droppings on my comments mm-hmm. with complete yes. lack of awareness that what they're doing is just seeking out validation and that <laughs> haters are really just, you know, lovers who don't love themselves yet. And so they're coming yes. knocking on my door, calling me a creep while they're creeping on my feed when all they have to do is scroll away and troll away and Keep look it. away. So like play, yep. even when I'm like, engaging with that even if it's just to to hold up a mirror or to boost my exposure <laughs> as they're like you know boosting my uh, my um visibility there's there's a part of me that it's very easy to like get stuck in that game of like me versus them or this competitive or like mm-hmm. just trying to like trying somebody that's trying to hurt you trying to like hurt them back or something and so every time i posted something i had to remind myself like all i really want for this person is to wake up to the realization that what they're doing is because of a deficit in themselves now the reason that they commented on this is because i was born with a a birthmark which is a mole it started off as a small i call it el topo the mole Uh, (laughs) a tiny dot on my cheek when i was younger it's in dutch it's called mudderfleck which means mother stain and i haven't seen my mother in eight years i'm about to go visit her in the netherlands so it's very uh, very uh significant for me right now to talk about it um and it's grown you know over time so i have this protruding mole and it's kind of the elephant in the room nobody talks about it i don't bring it up but now because the good side of my face as i call it the other <laughs> side uh is now tarnished by this like kiss of a parasite which is still healing like the parasites are out but it's still healing and it's like it's a, yeah. it's a horrific look it looks like a cronenbergian bioport um <laughs> but because of that similar to what you were saying about your son who uh you know people might think like oh he has like you know he he has an articulation deficiency or something oh poor him sort of thing but like you're saying it's a superpower as well it's like if if he can find confidence 
in himself and still present himself in spite of this and not think of it as woe is me or Mm -hmm. as a deficiency or a disorder or some like uh like to, to reinforce this kind of like societal oppression on account of this thing um then it is a superpower because and that's kind of how i'm in the world right now i'm walking through the world with the good side of my face tarnished so i'm leading with the side that's the mother stain right Uh, And I'm leaning into it. Like when I had my performance, the first thing I did was like, just so that nobody gets distracted, I'd like to address some of the indentations and protrusions beveled and embossed on my visage, you know, and then like (laughs) talk about it. Uh, And so similarly, I'm going through the world right now and it's weird because I'm like, I shake people's hand and I'm, it starts, this is how my interactions start nowadays. I go, I have to shake your hand with the wrong hand. And then I hold up the other one because flesh eating parasites, you know, like that's, this is how I'm leading in the world right That's now because so, I have to because it's yes, written yes. on my face. Um, yeah. And so the connection in a way becomes forged on an account of my, um, let's say, my handicap at the moment is actually I'm leading with my vulnerability yeah. and turning it into That's something that, that becomes the bridge. Because I know we're all struggling with something, so it also makes it easier for other people then to make themselves vulnerable and share maybe what they're dealing with. The other day, because I have to wear a hat to shield this lesion on my face from direct sunlight, so I'm wearing this hat my sister gave to me, which is a Colombian farmer's hat. And oh, it's yeah. pretty cool. It's a pretty cool look. So I'm walking through the streets with this thing on, and then uh, a Colombian family walks by and they go, I soy Colombiano. And it's like, no, no, no. But my brother-in-law is Colombian. And I start talking to them. At some point, shake their hand. I'm like, I have to go with the wrong hand because parasites. Turns out their daughter also, when visiting Mexico, had a very similar thing, uh, which then they had to, they were never fully able to identify it, but they wanted to go like the route of like kind of heavy metals pumped into her mm-hmm. system. And uh, it became this very like in the middle of the street, this very open sharing conversation with this lovely Colombian family that lives in New York. And so there was this moment of like real connection that happened. And we were a few steps away from the psychedelic library, the Athenaeum, where my artwork Mm -hmm. is displayed. So I said, if you guys are interested, stop by over there and go check out some of the artwork. And they went in there and they talked to everybody in there. And it's just like, I love that. I love the, um, the connect the dots, connecting the dots also between people, because it's what I seek. I have some friends who are great nodes of connectivity like my friend uh, who goes by the name Jeffsky Krumlov who lives in Prague who has since I've been in New York like sent me numerous connections of people in this area uh, or my friend Amy who here in town has been very much like an ambassador of the ungoogleable and like mm-hmm. telling me when there's cool things happening where where to go who to talk to like introducing me to people like I I very much forging connections is um pivotal in creating uh, a human ecosystem yes in this world so, you know i think that's we're all, beautiful we all have to feed each other with 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 positive energetic yeah. exchanges and that's that's kind of how i try to move through the world and then in effect you know that's what i find like i walk through the streets not just with this hat but also with this flute this like bamboo root flute by my friend um dan hansen of rootflute.com uh and um and it's a it's a great way also to kind of like enchant the environment. I'm like the Pied Piper wandering around and especially at the subway. I summon the subway with it. Yesterday, I got into that event with uh, Daniel Pinchbeck and Douglas Rushkoff 
when I entered, uh, I got to the security guard and I was like, is this the place? And he goes, yeah, let me just see your, and he wanted to say like ID or a reservation or whatever it was. And then he sees my flute and he goes, oh, you're all right. And he lets me in. So the flute became the key into the secret club. And then like at night in the subways, when there's this kind of like, you know, 2 a.m. kind of like paranoid (laughs) Gaspar Noe vibe hanging around. Uh, I stand on the platform and I just like let it echo, like play a serenade the rats in the subway tracks and whoever is sitting around slightly unnerved by the late night subway subterranean ambience and and create this sense of enchantment and safety and serenity. So, um, yeah. Does that answer your question on connectivity? (laughs) Oh yeah. No, that's absolutely gorgeous. And I, well, what, it, I have so many notes I wrote down that we are not even close to touching and I'm not even going to try and divert into these directions because it would just be too much. <laughs> I mean, and I, I, wanna I be have s- time if you want to turn this into a okay. double episode. Cool. Like I'm, I'm down, dude. I'm- if you got a minute to talk, I definitely <laughs> yeah, would yeah. like to go a just little don't bit feel longer. Rushed. Don't feel rushed. Okay, don't feel cool. rushed. I- you know? <laughs> Once I hit the hour and a half mark, I feel like I uh, I have to check in with people yeah. and uh, make don't sure. Don't feel rushed. Not- Let's dug in. <laughs> what? Perfect. Beautiful. So your talk with Eric Wargo, I didn't finish re-listening to it today, but I think at some point in there, and if it's not that, it's somewhere else he's talking about it. He talks about how uh, synchronicities are these things that we unconsciously orient ourselves towards, these miracles that we orient ourselves towards. And part of like the activative ingredient is sharing them. And part of the point of these things is to have these connections and have like that story you just told about the Colombian family. Like that is part yes. of like those synchronistic events. And I think that is so beautiful and such a like synchronicities become almost like a buzzword like my mom uses it by like you know very uh of the pop culture uh sister uses it like people but they forget this part of it that it's supposed to be this interconnective thing that we use and i think it's also really an important part of the grant morrison hyper sigil story because when he was doing the invisibles and performing that hyper sigil that was the comic he was also including how to make your own sigil in the back of each of those comic books every month and putting it out into like this 1990s mainstream Marvel DC fanboy world that like all these people are buying this book because this dude did Arkham Asylum and was a Batman uh, author and now he's like introducing and even if like 2% of those people even looked at it or it made the world weirder and it was in that sharing that was part of what he attributes to that hyper sigil working and I think it's you just illustrated that so beautifully and I I just wanted to kind of bring that up because it was on my mind. (laughs) He he wrote this essay called pop magic which you've probably read have you read yeah. that yeah of course yeah it's one of my favorites that's like the first place you have to go after the the missing is it misinfo or disinfo misinfo right? Dis, disinfo i think disinfo it is. okay or i could be wrong talk. though it's it, oh no it is dis, it, disinfo actually yeah okay so it's like in in pop magic he touches onto a lot of these these similar themes that he brings up in the uh in the in that disinfo talk um wargo yeah he he not only says that the synchronicities are our way of navigating through time and orienting ourselves towards rewards in the landscape of our lives, but he also says that then it's us creating those synchronicities kind of retrocausally, which is the idea of the time loop, right? Yeah. So, for instance, let's say I meet the um I meet the Colombian family in the street. 
I have a meaningful interaction, which really like in that moment of connection, when you're like, I'm like standing with this half circle of, of like this genetic deck spread, <laughs> this fan <laughs> genetic deck spread out before me. And I, I like scan across these eyes and I see their commonality and their unit as a family reflecting back at me as like part of the human family. It really, it, it has a feeling of destiny in those moments, you know, a yeah. feeling of like, this is really happening. This will always be happening along these space-time coordinates of actuation. And there's a real moment of, the, the first line in a, an unfinished book that I started read, writing like over 20 years ago, and I still intend to finish it at some point, but the first line was, it's not so much destiny as it is the feeling of destiny. And that feeling becomes very actuated in those moments. So let's say because of the reality of that moment, it casts itself back in time. And when my sister offers me this Colombian hat, I say yes to it because in the moment when this hat has fortified this connection, I'm casting a glance back, a glim glimpse back through time that hits me in the moment when my sister gives me the hat and I try it on and I go, this is ridiculous, I love it. Yes. And so now in the moment when that hat fortifies this moment of connection, the time loop is closed, you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, the synchronicity absolutely. is is something that we're co-creating and self-creating. Uh, and, and I think that Borgo's notion of that, that it really orients us to these moments, these real moments of connection, like for instance, like the sharing of a dream and then some of that aspect coming true, somebody telling you about what happened and then you bringing up the dream report to um, kind of prove that you did have this uh, this precognition about it. It's not about some supernatural thing or some like archetypal repository shining its influence in from some outside abstract Akashic record library space, but it's about these earthbound encounters casting their glints back throughout time. So this is like comes down to kind of something McKenna talked about as you can think of this transcendental uh, object at the end of time. You can think of it as a disco ball that sends its various uh, refractions uh, out throughout time. And these beams may hit in different apparitions, in different manifestations, such as this guru over here or this great rock song or this great souffle. And so, like, that that's the sense that I'm – why I like this um, retrocausation precognition angle is that it – it helps us reframe our the dimension of time and how we move through that rather than calling upon, uh, which still, you know, like there's a lot of assumption around this this very commonly accepted notion of the uh, the collective unconscious or the archetypes, which I'm not discarding this idea. And I think they're beautiful metaphors and beautiful ideas. But what Wargo also pointed out is that we tend to think of Freud as being reductive, and in some sense, of course, he is. But also like this orienting through time in order to orient yourself towards rewards and towards safety and towards survival is very Freudian in that sense. And he's actually saying that the Jungian idea of reducing a person or an instance to an archetype is reductive. And I hadn't thought of that, yeah. but I think it's true because he puts the emphasis on the biography and then all the nuanced plot points in somebody's life, which is similar to like what McKenna was always talking about, right? Like, well, it, well, if my life is a narrative, then then you can see the fingerprints of editors, and then whose narrative is it? So, like, becoming aware of kind of the 
the narratization qualities of consciousness and how to engineer those in a way where you can you can navigate yourself through that space and which is not to say that you know i can look at you and i can like reduce you down like shave off the specifics of your life to an archetype but i think it's doing a disservice to the real mystery like in some some sense people might say like no but i think the archetypal imposition of that larger pattern that universal common pattern uh increases the mystery yeah but it does so at the cost of all the specifics of somebody's life, the uniqueness of this individual's experience. And when we tune into those, the mystery is not diminished by more information. The more information actually makes the mystery more tangible and yes. livable. Right? Yes. And no, that's kind it's of so and that's, beautiful. And that's and where I've always laid the emphasis in my life because I'm very much like attuned to my biography and it's interesting because my father suffers from Alzheimer's and he always said that you know uh if you ever have money invested in experience rather than things because they can't take that away from you and now in a sad twist of fate Oof. the memories are being taken from him even though he has like a hundred years worth of photo books to reference uh a lot of the 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 memories and the specifics of his biography have been you know, wiped away, but he did write a memoir of the first 50 years of his life. So sometimes we'll read to him from it or he'll read from it and he'll say, oh, this is very interesting. Who wrote this? You know, uh, oh, wow. so yeah. so this is like for me, the, um, the the kind of looming guillotine of potential cognitive decline is something that kind of makes me go more pedal to the metal and want to like tell my stories, write them recite them, share them in conversation, such as I'm doing now, uh, and to also motivate others to pay attention to all the little seemingly trivial moments in their lives, which can be woven like threads into the coherent tapestry of their the significance of their existence. That is so beautiful in a million ways. And it makes me think of, in keeping with the Eric Wargo conversation, how y'all frame the idea of free will. And I, I wrote down the one quote that you said, and which is, uh, I think something along the lines of free will is not the ability to alter events. It's the ability to alter how we feel about or frame them. And I think yes. that is such an important, again, like, we're taking these big ideas of making them practical. You can change your life right now in 30 seconds by applying that right. to your situation. And like, whether it's how we were talking about the way my son views his articulation or the way you just framed your father's cognitive decline, like there's so much value in that. And I, I just, I think that with nothing else, uh, the work that he's doing and the way that that conversation you had and the stories that you're telling are so supportive of this. And I think that's like, yeah. if all we are are the stories that we have, you're doing real good because that's something <laughs> you, you got, man. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, 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 exactly, it's just like this parasitic thing. Like I could hide myself from the world. And it's ironic. It's like ironic in the sense of the, the Alanis Morissette song where it's just like bad luck, you know, <laughs> like rain at a wedding. It's like on your yes, wedding yes. day. It's like, that's not ironic. That's just bad luck. I'm not the first to point that out, but it's similar. It's like I have this parasitic mark on my post parasitic mark on my face, right? As I'm ready to like get in front of people again. And so, you know, I could hide that away or I could lean into it and make that a part of the story. And it's like, it's an attitudinal perspective that you have yeah. to take to reality. There are things we can't control, you know, 
then you can make the world whatever you want it to be in conjunction with everybody else, you know? Like, you yes. are the creator of your own reality in conjunction with everybody else, you know? That's that's the force that there's things we can't control. There are, you know, you're creating your reality, okay, then you're responsible for 9-11 having happened, yes. okay? So, you don't want that responsibility, okay, then you maybe you're not as as godly as you think you are. You have a spark of the divine in you, but that spark of the divine is in how you are going to frame these different things. It's a terrible thing that happened, but, and also, there is beauty that comes from it. And that's like the coincidencia appositorum and kind of the, uh, what I call wonder horror of life, is that... <laughs> That there is this, that that there are terrible things that happen and beautiful things that grow from it. The earth is a terrible thing. It it was birthed out of an explosion. It was like, you know, for billions of years, it was unlivable. And and just like the earth, the the soil itself is made out of the dead, you know? It's like the earth is an open burial ground. And yet the beauty that grows from that soil, you know? Like, Like joy flowers bloom from the soil of sorrow. Like it's, it's, it's there. So So I think that our attitudinal perspectives, we have a lot of, freedom within that and also the the idea of free will is also i think can be misconstrued as like free will like my will is free to do as it pleases or you can (laughs) think of it as a liberated will where you are no longer trying to will things into existence but you are also submitting to the whims of the great magnet as um hunter thompson once says all energy flows according to the whims of the great magnet if you can submit your will to that of a greater will where you can recognize it and move along with its whims, then that that's real magic. Um, yeah. Sue Gurney, who is like a uh, person, like a healer I met in North Carolina, like, I don't know, 20 years ago, uh, who proclaimed herself not psychic, but said that she has high sense perception, which I really like that distinction. She once defined magic as when your will becomes an extension of nature of the greater will of nature in a way and i've always that's always resonated with me it's not that you're doing it it's that you're allowing it through you and then you get to have the discernment and this is what makes one an artist i think is the discernment of which wills and whims you allow to move through you which parts of nature you are here to represent you know that's yeah, absolutely. I, I resonate with that so strongly. And it's so funny that you went straight into the uh, essentially where you went, because right under that quote, I have written down, it's all perfect, which is in reference to that Ramdas talk where it starts with this mm. poem from a Buddhist monk that says, and I don't remember the actual poem, but he says, you know, I am the bug. I am the snake that eats the bug. I, he lists how we are the beauty and the destruction. We are the creation and the devastation. It's all inside of us and that it's all perfect and that we shouldn't you know, separate those things out in the way that we do a lot of the times. And it's one of those statements that I love the way that Ramdas kind of explains it in that saying something like it's all perfect is it's it's not human enough. It takes it takes the humanity away, but standing right. purely in humanity and that idea that we generated 9-11 or the starving, <laughs> like standing fully in that idea is too much. So it's this 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 middle way, this uh, you know, keeping a foot in hope and hopelessness at the same time and i i love that like that consistent message that comes from people like yourself and 
one of the things I'm sorry, that was a can this I, can I don't have anything no, can I respond jump to in. something like that? So yes, the totally. idea of perfectionism too, I think, plays into uh, expectation management. You know, like a perfectionist oftentimes can't release their creation because it's not quite where they want it to be, not quite towards their expectations. And so the idea that yeah. everything is perfect, you can say like, well, what about all the starving children? Or what about mm-hmm. this? Or what about that? Or what about the parasites eating the artists? You know, <laughs> uh, you can bring all these things into light, but it's a different kind of perfectionism. I think that everything is perfect is a very wabi-sabi sense. And this yes. goes back to that same uh, book, that novel that I, I was writing 20 years ago that starts with that line. It, it's not so much destiny as it is the feeling of destiny. There's a whole segment where the main character walks on the shoreline and starts collecting flawed seashells because he realized this is as good as it's going to get. Like those are as beautiful <laughs> in their imperfection as yes. as anything else. So it's really, it's that... Uh, it's where your absolute measure starts. And so for this character, Delmar, his absolute measure starts right there, right then. So this this flawed so seashell cool. he finds is like perfect. And so he stuffs his pockets with it. Um, yeah, that's all I wanted to say about that. Now yeah. you continue. The, the, <laughs> continue your train I, of the concept of Wabi Sabi always just makes me think of the episode of King of the Hill where Bobby starts growing roses and uh, they go to the head shop to buy all of the, uh, and they introduce him to the concept of, you know, the imperfection is what makes something perfect. And I think that yeah. is such a beautiful Isn't way that the one with the head it. shop where he like puts exactly. the roses in bongs? Yeah. So my, yep, uh, yep. my now ex-girlfriend and, and uh, dear friend Rosa who lived with me in the jungle, um, she is a huge, huge King of the Hill fan, so she shared all those episodes, including that one with me, which is you know, the, <laughs> the Bob the Bobby Sabi episode. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. Yeah, it's, I love that. I, I, yeah, it, it always pops into my head, and I love those little things that take over. Um, and now I don't remember where I was going to go with that, but it's okay because I have something else <laughs> I wanted to notes. ask. You've got I notes. got notes, and, yeah. and <laughs> it's true, and none of them. So the essentially the things that i wanted to ask you about outside of these kind of like time and you know bigger consciousness questions is more about like how you make stuff and the way that Mm -hmm. different tools speak to you like you talk a lot about the surface uh calling to you and having this demonic interaction with the surface right and like one of the things that i i had wondered because I know we touched on earlier that you work a lot digitally and you've gone back to traditionally, like how much of a difference is the interaction between the tools that you're using? Like, I I really believe in this idea of personhood and that everything has its own personhood. The tablet does. And one of my Mm -hmm. favorite things in the way uh, of that, that I've heard you talk about is how we're drawing on like a liquid crystal surface and it's a crystal ball. And like, it's Mm -hmm. such a beautiful way because I've heard a lot of other people talk about it in the way, almost like in the paranormal investigation way of evps you can get them analog or you can get them digitally and digitally it's not that one is better than the other but zeros and ones are going to give you a different result than a analog tape that has a magnet and these type of things and i think the same thing can be said creatively but i am interested in 
you know, a lot of people frame the digital as less of a tool to connect to that muse or that greater idea pool that David Lynch talks to for whatever reason. I've heard people say that zeros and ones are two. There's no space for liminality where creativity exists and things like that that sound like poetic-y and fun, but also I'm kind of like, that's bullshit. And I don't know, I'm yeah. just interested in where you sit on tools. <laughs> I think they're self-limiting distinctions to say that one is has more potential than the other. I think the potential is within us. Um, yeah. EVP, which stands for electronic voice phenomena, which is something that I like to talk about a lot too, because it's kind of like an auditory form of pareidolia, which is a, yes. a technique I use a lot. And pareidolia basically just means the tendency for perception to find meaningful patterns within random stimuli. So within the algorithm of randomness, or what I call the aleatoric organization, the organization based in chance, um, in association with the divine design, which is the way the mind magnetizes or and or projects meaning onto that randomness, right? To extract uh, yeah. form from what is essentially formless or hyperform, because chaos is really just really vastly structured order. Um, so I, first of all, let's talk about that the the behaviorism of tools which is something that's a guiding force for me also to become possessed by process, as I talked about earlier. I like to watch how the tools behave. If I'm using words, I like to watch how they fall into place and how they sort themselves through like things that sound alike or things that rhyme or things that have a nice entrainment. And I learn to trust that so that my uh, meaning can get ahead of the channel. Sometimes I'll say things that I don't even understand entirely until later. It feels good. And I look back at it and I'm like, that made perfect sense, actually. And I like, <laughs> revealed something to myself, which yes. that to me is kind of like that idea of like the fairy possessed or demonic tongue, you know, like where where uh, new ideas spark from your tongue or new configurations of ideas that you hadn't previously thought of. And similarly with a brush, if I'm painting something uh, analog, I like to see how the brush behaves, like how it wants to move, how it wants to fall, the kind of textures it leaves behind. And then there's just like an economy of like, there's still some red on my brush, so let me brush it off over here. It's a very irrational, economical um, guidance. And what happens a lot of the times is like, like you mentioned, I like things get prompted from the surface of the tablet, of the sidewalk, of the canvas as though it were a psychic teleprompter. So usually it starts with a kind of random priming, which is the aleatoric organization. And then I take orders from that. Uh, things start to show up, usually faces, personalities, characters. And I just begin to, tr where I see the first one, I begin to trace it. Uh, and, and I don't, you know, it used to be I was much more discerning with who I'd let through the barriers, but I've really started thinking of this as a demonic interface. And I think of the daemon, less so as like a disincarnate entity hovering around and whispering ideas in my ear so much as it's part of that illuminated unconscious of the larger, yeah. the long self, as Eric Wargo calls it, just this larger entelechy, or um, that's just a fancy word to say, like the realized potential of the self extended beyond time, you know, the full zoetrope, yeah. the full deck. And so this is like an avatar of that presenting itself uh, through this kind of dissociated state. So I'm really just dissociating from my identity so that the the active part of me can act out its its larger body of gnosis. And what happens is that all these characters get prompted to the surface and traced. And oftentimes these are not characters I 
choose to lead with. They're perverted. They're eating each other. They're <laughs> clamoring on top of each other. They're like pulling strange faces, like whatever it may be. Like, but I, I think of these as like the the, the strange, the shady, you know, like little, yep. you know, all kinds of things. Um, I consider them like the estranged and disowned and uh, repressed and suppressed parts of ourselves coming back to greet us and wanting to be embraced and acknowledged and accepted back in integrated into totality. So for me, that's kind of the process. And I can only get there by letting the tools tell the tale. So if I'm playing a flute, I'm not thinking like, oh, this is this note and then this note. It's like I'm feeling my way through it and I'm allowing that larger part of myself as myself gets out of the way to come through and express itself. Um, was there another element to that yeah so the the tablet or the digital side of it so that's evp yeah. electronic voice phenomenon right it's like yeah that's where i, I diverged into the pareidolia idea so this was something exactly. that was was originally introduced to me before it was electronic i guess it was still electronic but it was called bundstemmen in dutch taped voices i was at cool. a paranormal convention that my sister took me to when i was like i don't know 13 14 and uh you know they had like aura readers people with Atlantean lore. And then there was a little booth with a little old man who had some tapes for sale. And he was talking about, yeah, there's little tape voices and, uh, you know, it has instructions on it. And you basically, you, uh, you know, you, 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 it works like this. You uh, take a tape recorder and you record. And on the other tape recorder, you play this tape uh, and, uh, or you play the white noise, the radio, tuned between channels. And so the idea is that um, you tune you tune the white noise of the radio and you have the recorder running and then you call upon the dearly departed. And I always like to say it's like, I talk about this on my album, Seance Fiction. There's like a spoken word track called Necromancy 101 that kind of leads you through this. You, you call upon uh, the voices of the dead. So that's your grandmother or John Lennon, who is easier to reach through a radio. Mm-hmm. And you ask questions and you leave spaces and then you listen back. And within the white noise, you can start hearing shapes that sound kind of like voices, you know. And then once you've spoken what you've heard, somebody else will probably hear the same thing. Uh, but the beauty of it is, is like, oh, that's just pareidolia. You know, that's just uh, randomness uh, perceived as meaning. But yeah. then where, where does the meaning come from? This is prompted or divined from the deeper parts of yourself. Just like if you have two choices to make and you flip a coin and it lands on one choice, you'll know if that's the one you wanted or if it's the other yeah. one. You know, like so the, the so divination, true. which is also something Jane's talks about that after the uh, hallucinated gods departed and we were left with this skit sovereign consciousness where now we had to make the decisions that the gods would make for us uh, we came up with things like reading entrails or the casting of lots which later became the lottery and gambling but divination was the way to uh, summon the mind behind the divine design you know like to yeah. figure out what the gods wanted um, totally. and so similarly I try to summon these lost continents of the imagination or of the psyche to the forefront like that so that, first of all, there's less work for me to do in the department <laughs> of like, you know, how I have to think about it. I'm very trusting. I can just throw down. Like it started out in, as a sidewalk seance, you know, called stain spotting, where I would find stains that, you know, basically like uh, disgusting ink blots on the street. Like, yeah. uh, And life became a Rorschach worship workshop where I'd walk around <laughs> and I would start to outline in chalk these different forms that came to the foreground. And it was a way to simplify my otherwise very labor-intensive studio paintings. So now I could just like isolate a single form from the stain with weird little characters or creatures that 
came out. And it, I used chalk, which is what they used to use to outline on crime scenes, you know, the, the outlines of the bodies <laughs> of the dead. And now it outlined where, instead of where the dead had fallen, where the imagination arose in these like <sighs> cave art on concrete expositions that were also very much like sand mandalas. You know, they were ephemeral, yeah. uh, but I would take a picture of them. Uh, and nowadays I just take the picture of the stain and I take it home. I, you know, I've got a dirty mind, but my hands like to stay clean. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, I import it into my tablet and I outline it digitally. So now I actually have the analog input of the aleatoric organization, the algorithm of randomness, the street stain or the, um, you know, whatever elements uh, I plot something in. Mm -hmm. And I get to outline it digitally. And of course, yeah. the, the digital pen behaves differently than a brush. So it's a different behavior, but also it's, it's rudimentary line work that I'm just tracing. So it doesn't really... Uh, I think it's an, an excuse to say that one is better than the other or, or can access, um, you know, like Andrew Jones, Android mm -hmm. Jones. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he talks about electromineralism is what he calls his style, which is like digital art, you know. And that's that's exactly gets back to that idea of the, the LCD screen as a liquid crystal display through which we get to um, access. It's almost like it's a screen that looks into the back of our minds. And if we're open enough it will prompt uh, those things to the foreground. So I, I really, I, I came up with this line the other day that's part of a piece I'm writing right now called The City is an Oracle. Uh, the notion that I navigate reality as though it were equal parts slot machine and Ouija board. <laughs> <laughs> that's beautiful. And I think one of the healthiest ways to go through life. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, you know, it's like it, it keeps me from having to make do all the heavy lifting. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I really, I really enjoy levity. I enjoy play. I trust in my yes. skill sets that I have honed over time. And I like to surprise myself. I don't want, if I like, there is this kind of static quality to what we call visionary art. Mm -hmm. And I really, I like the ecstatic quality uh, of just like the levity and yes. the play and allowing things to take shape rather than to enforce my intellect on how I see the world. Like I'm not trying to come back from an incredibly deep experience and then clothe it and make it static in symbols. I want to yeah. cultivate the experience as though it were a garden and grow new symbols out of it, custom created symbol systems. And so I've termed these, what I call divined designs, these pareidolic art forms. Um, and I also, I made like, I made a hundred pareidoodles, pareidolic doodles, because I wanted people to be able to own an original piece for 25 bucks a piece rather than having to spend hundreds on a larger original. So there's still some of those available for anybody interested. Just check out my Instagram, which will probably be linked below. Um, it will. <laughs> but uh, I, I, the, the sales pitch dera derailed me as I knew it would. <laughs> oh, um, no, it's it's all good. But you, there was, there was a final thought in there. If I can backtrack yeah, for a totally, moment please, here. Take your time. If I can find a way to do it. Uh, yeah, so I call these these divined designs, I consider it post-visionary psyop pop art. More Ooh. fun than mere fine art, more toast modern than a painted Pop-Tart. That's my, <laughs> that's my, that's my logo slogan, slurred logo it. slogan. That's a nice <laughs> turn of phrase. Maybe have your kid do this tongue twister, slurred logo slogan. <laughs> see see if it comes out of that. Slurred logo slogan. In. Slurred logo slogan. That's a, 
<laughs> I'm not even going to try it because my tongue is losing its ability <laughs> as we go here. One of the things with having kids is it forces me to wake up really early to have mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. not parent time, you know? I, I work from yeah. home. I have a little studio in the garage. So I've fallen into the routine of waking up at like 4 a.m. and taking the four. I used to be a stay up all night. And then I realized you can do the same thing. You just have to wake up really early. And like, mm-hmm. so if I get up at like 3.34, I kind of touch that same nice time where it's like everything's quiet in the world everything's quiet in the house i can do my thing so i but around this time is where my brain starts slipping um but dude what you just said made me think of so many things that i'm really excited to ask you about and i want to go down two things real quick and start wrapping this up because it's We've been going for two hours, and like I said, my brain's slipping, and I don't want to yeah, yeah. end on a low note. And also, it's my kid's back to school night, so we get to go meet oh, his wow. teachers and what and everything Ooh. in about an hour. Yes, it's a big time. I say I love the season because it's just like this manifestation of possibility. Like I love right now, and I the weather is particularly uh, advantageous for this, but where you can wear like shorts and a hoodie and feel really nice. And I feel like there's something to that season and having that reconnection with back to school time has been exciting for me for some reason. <laughs> but uh, also just like I get my house back for a little bit, having the kid away <laughs> is also very nice sure. and helps productivity. But when you were talking about the things that pop out of this paradolic work, right? And one I love, and you and Anthony Peake touch on this and cover it really well. Like I love these uh, links to the paranormal and the paranormal creation and the paranormal part of the art, right? Like I think there's this beautiful tie there and you talk Mm -hmm. about it in a really nice way. And things like pareidolia, people use to write off these paranormal experiences, whether it's pareidolia or sleep paralysis or all these things that no matter how you explain them, they're still just as weird as if they are physical encounters, you know, like they are there and the, the actual, uh, the mechanism behind them doesn't matter as much as the message coming through. Like the, the, exactly. the point is, exactly. is the, what is being said over the phone, not how the phone works. And I really think that yeah. you, that's kind again, of the just, finger pointing at the moon kind of thing, right? It's like, Oh, exactly. the fingertip, the fingertip. It's like, no, 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 look, look where I'm pointing, which is yes. funny. Uh, incidentally, this with my father's, uh, neurodegeneration and, uh, rising aphasia and things like that. I'll like, can you hand me the remote? And he'll be like, this It's like, no, that's a cup that over there. No, look where I'm, look where I'm pointing. And then he'll look at the finger. Like it's literally, <laughs> sometimes literally wow. that thing. It but doesn't the, get yeah, much so more the, literal than that. The, the thing like pareidolia, and I talked about this, um, uh, when I was on where did the road go with, uh, Josh Kutchin and some other good folks. Um, and I brought this up also, I think probably when I was on Anthony Peake's show, cause this has kind of been the, uh, the thing that I've been trying to broadcast into the world about pareidolia as a demonic interface, it does easily get written off or um, kind of yeah, just like discarded as, but, but that's pareidolia, you know, like when you wake up in the middle of the night and um, you're somewhere between dreaming and waking and a pile of clothes on the chair looks like a person, it's a potent portal that liminal moment where your disbelief is suspended and you're actually in your psyche encountering some kind of spectral representative of the hidden shadow parts of yourself. But moreover, and this is why I call it post-visionary psyop pop art, because the psyop, the psychological operation that's at play here, is that pareidolia reveals the profound truth that the faces in the clouds are not just projected 
onto the external world, but that the external world taken in through the senses has been completely processed and formed in the brain and is then projected outwards and simultaneously apprehended as external. So the reality is not objective, but it is objectified by your subjective experience. And so when I walk around and I see a street stain that looks like, you know, uh, Jesus, you know, for convenience sake, because there's a lot of Jesus on toast uh, going around in these worlds. Uh, It's that moment when I realize, like, if I'm seeing that there, then that that reality has been processed in my brain so that it's integrated. And then I can make the chalk outline and leave the mark so that, like we talked about earlier, the kind of like the tulpa, the inner thought form, now has an external... Uh, representation that others can see too. So now my mind has just been reified and integrated into this reality. Yes. So there's there's something really potent. And then there's also, of course, if you see Jesus on your toast, we must be able to return to the primordial ink block, the primordial Rorschach, rather than saying that that's actually Jesus on toast or Jesus appeared to you in this vision. Uh, taking it literally, taking it seriously rather than literally, because if we take it literally and we can no longer return to the original random stimuli, then we enter the realms of what I call pareidolatry, where we become idolatrous of the pareidolic image. And so these, these are like the realms that I like to explore because I feel like it shows a very concrete uh, signifier of this old inner outer dichotomy you know or the 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 mechanisms of synchronicity where it's like well it shows that your psychic life has some kind of uh, reaction in the external world it's like there is no external world like there's something out there but it's ultimately dressed up in familiar forms as it gets processed through the brain and that's not necessarily uh, and just as Jamesian thought is not necessarily a reduction to uh, materialism it just yeah. shows that the material world is something far stranger and immaterial than we think. And I call that distinction between the material and the meta-real. So meta-realism is, you know, it shows that matter isn't even matter, you know? <laughs> like matter is yeah. made up of all yeah. these spinning little bits and pieces mm-hmm. whirling about and somehow creating this, this, this seemingly solid state which, you know, under any kind of uh, psychedelic influence can show you very quickly that this is a very malleable state. That doesn't mean that when the building starts wobbling like it's a blow-up effigy of itself, that the rest of the world will also experience this. But again, it goes to show that this is something that has been processed within our um, world-building machinery, our meaning-making machinery, our story-plotting machinery, yeah. And even calling it machinery is like, I, I like to go back to the Cronenbergian idea of this kind of like biotechnology, you know, these kind of like fleshy modules. Um, yeah, I, I feel there's something very potent there that, and, and especially because it gets dismissed a lot, similarly as like yes. a UFO experience while on mushrooms gets dismissed because, yeah, well, you were, you were on mushrooms. But it's like, yeah, but 
then what does that say about mushrooms? You know, it's actually yeah, no. And you just touched on one of my favorite parts. We love in the paranormal communities to talk about hoaxes and these things, and in those circles that I uh, kind of uh, run with with this with the weirdos, like hoaxing is part of the magic. Like I've, I don't know how familiar you are with things like the Philip experiment, but essentially they created a ghost. Is uh, it was a very I, I'm going to not do a full story because it's a really long one, but essentially they set up these seances to try to replicate what was going on with spiritualism. And they made a ghost. They gave it a whole backstory. They gave a whole story. It was not a real person. And they tried to summon this ghost using seance techniques and things like that. But until they started having fun with it and loosening up and having it be this social thing and having playfulness with it, it didn't work. But as soon as they started doing that and allowing themselves to be a little bit more or uh, jo- jovial with the experience, this thing started popping in and they started experiencing all the stuff that they experienced in spiritual seances from uh, tapping and knock- knocking to ectoplasm mm. and all this stuff. And these are like scientific minded people running this experiment that were kind right. of blown away that like the thing is it, the thing is the connection of the people and that playful interaction like that is part of it it's co-created it's like it's so, like we right. are a part of that experience and i think you illustrate that so well with what you were just explaining and people forget that like there's something and that's kind of where i was going as part of what i was saying with what's popping out of these paradolic uh pieces of art being a little bit more uh sinister or darker or like the shadow side that seems to be a big part of all of this stuff that pops out and like i, I think about it in the way of underground comics of the 60s that like r crumb was kind of the the leader of yeah, right like yeah. people talk about that as it was this historical time where it was this backlash and all this repressed energy from like the golden age of comics and like all the goody two shoes stuff that was in superhero comics. It was like these people rebelling and releasing. But I also think that all of those comics were the first comics that were really done as a flow state, uh, kind of getting into that subconscious and just going. They're not plotting out stories. They're just putting pen to paper and letting things come out. And that lets that shadow side out. That lets that like, you know, Lynchian side of the world out. And they weren't filtering those ideas because that's not the point of underground comics. So I think it's interesting that the more we let ourselves play and let things come out those darker things do arise and it seems like a safe space for them to come out if that makes sense carl jung once said and i don't remember where i got this from but i love the idea that it puts forth he told his children to always take each other serious at play (sighs) that's beautiful and that's exactly it if we can enter into a playful state and allow more of ourselves to come to the forefront and to always take each other serious at play so that, you know, if somebody's play acting some trauma or something like there might be a reality underneath it and it might find, because everything just wants, this is what I learned through these divine designs is that everything just wants to be seen, heard, acknowledged and accepted and embraced. So for somebody to be able to play act and let out like the, the, the darker parts of themselves in a safe way that doesn't harm anybody uh, and allow it to be seen and expressed, it can be like a very cathartic experience, I think. And so I also, when I did that album, Seance Fiction, under the name Void Denizen, uh, which is also my moniker when I make films and things like that, um, there was the first video I put out is called Shrimp Pimp, and there's an introduction voiceover that says, people always say, be yourself. I say, don't be yourself. Be someone else. 
For it's not until you take leave of the limitations of who you believe yourself to be that you can become who you really are, full expression. And that's, if anything, I feel like very much like the the takeaway from uh, what I do is to kind of like create a kind of self-transcendent media, you know? Like I want my words to look over the ledge of the known and and get pushed up against the unspeakable to see how it will behave like will it yes will it flail and fly or fail and 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 fumble and tumble and fall you know <laughs> will the uh will my imagery be able to touch onto the imaginary and give form to imaginal realms you know will will the self be able to transcend its self-imitating limitations and perhaps by by taking on a different identity or the identity of something more familiar find different ways to express itself like when i when i started doing kind of like the scottish accent like was very much inspired by grant morrison after seeing that talk um i just found that the words constructed themselves in a different way and there was a different entrainment when i talked like this like people would listen in a different way and there was a kind of enchantment to it and so the words would assemble themselves differently and I was able to express myself differently and express different things more comfortably because I didn't have to deal with the responsibility of being myself, you know, like, oh, yes. this is who I am. So, so to through play, supersede the boundaries that you've set for yourself, the permissions you've given yourself of who to be and allow yourself to be more of who you really are. I think that's, that's where we want to, that's where we want to be. That's beautiful. And I, I'm i going to say we should wrap it up here. I have, All like right. I said, so many other things in which I could ask, but I really feel like that is a perfect little button on this conversation. And I mean, beautiful. I could go into a whole pick it bunch up of... again another time. Like, uh, I would love like to have you back. I want to talk to you about Imaginal Offerings, which is something that me mm. and my buddy Vuk, uh, who's a brilliant dude from Bosnia who has a, a wonderful podcast called Tracing Owls. But we did a whole episode about how it, essentially for a long time, there was this idea of making offerings to the muses or the the good folk or these things. And now mm-hmm. that our, uh, essentially what is valuable in society is our attention, that offering our attention to things is the imaginal offering. So when you're talking about finding these stains on the street, you're offering your attention to the stain that gives it life. Yeah. And I think the there's like a really the fun... Yeah exactly there's like a beautiful connection there and that's actually another whole thing that i had written down that could be another hour conversation the the idea of garbage culture and this beauty that's right. in garbage culture that is like the, somewhat the trash like stratum, uh, as Philip exactly exactly and i think <laughs> you touch on that with one of my other favorite conversations with phil martell from weird studies oh, which yeah. i like I, that has a whole other like I would love to talk what to you about some of his ideas with art guy, and artifice. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Like there's, and that's one of the things I'm so excited about having you on for is you represent this linchpin. We started out talking about like our linchpin. With, I like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With uh, the where did the road go? And those dudes I've known, uh, not Sarai specifically, but like Joshua Cutchin and Super Inframan, who was probably on there with you, I believe. And mm-hmm, I've mm-hmm. talked to these these people a lot. And I've communicated, 
Chris Ernst, exactly. Yes, I've communicated your ideas that I've taken from your podcast to these people being like, you should listen to this. Like, this is the same. He's saying very similar things. And same thing with Ramin. Like, I'll listen to podcasts that Ramin does. And I'll be like, all of these people are saying the same thing. Some of them are just talking about it through Bigfoot and UFOs. And some of them are talking (laughs) about it through psychedelics and Terrence McKenna. And when Joshua Cutchin put out the book, Ecology of the Souls, which is directly taken from Terrence, but I was like, oh, somebody's doing it. Somebody's meshing Mm -hmm. the two. Because obviously Terrence has raps and papers about UFOs and goes back to Carl Jung. And like that interview with Terrence McKenna and John Mack might be my favorite 15 minutes on the internet. Have you ever seen that one? No, you'll have to it's, send me the link to that if you can. If you totally. John, John Mack's one of my favorite UFO abduction researchers out there, Harvard psychologist. Do you know his story with it? With, no, uh, I've never heard of any, him. I think he, I heard uh, you mention him on your, your Josh Kutchin episode. I but. bring him up a ton because of a lot of reasons, but uh, John Mack was one of the heads of psychology at Harvard who got fascinated by alien abductions and the parallels between his work with a lot of religious studies and things like that in psychology. And he gets super into the idea that essentially the whole UFO phenomenon is to make us grapple with this spiritual and material dichotomy that we are a part of and that the UFO is here to call us to uh, sit in that giant mystery. And there's this Mm -hmm. 15-minute conversation interview that Terrence McKenna does with John Mack. I think it's in Prague, if I remember right. And uh, I think it's the same weekend. Prognosis. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And like they do this whole thing about how alien abduction has this whole Gaian aspect to it where the earth is communicating with us via these archetypes etc but he ends it by being like Terrence John Max is Terrence I just want 15 minutes or I mean I just want five minutes here I just want to leave this uh one little and I think I even still have it written down over here let me see if I still have it because I'll uh I'll butcher it if I don't actually find the quote, but there's this beautiful quote that he ends the whole thing with. And it's pretty much uh, saying that the whole point of the UFO, I'm not going to find it now, but the whole point of this, whether it's UFOs or cryptids or anomalous experiences is to break this Western mentality that has kind of taken over and allow us to see that we are a small part in a big thing. And that we Mm -hmm. are like this really uh, specific mixture of spiritual and, and material. And we need to live in the material. Like we can't ignore that part of it. And that's really interesting to me because in the paranormal, people are always talking about nuts and bolts flesh and blood versus and it's like no it's all it's all of it it's not one or the other the whole point is the both (laughs) and yeah yeah, i mean that's what um william blake said something like uh the idea that we have a soul distinct from the body should be expunged you know Uh, (laughs) yeah again that idea that that the saucer might be cellular that it's a cellular saucer that the ecology of souls might be the ecology of cells that make up the body which like is a whole nother way of looking at these experiences like I used to really you know encounter entities with my head up in space and then later I found them in the body as like these like cellular collectives trying to communicate through uh, psychological personifications and then I found them in the garden as various you know insect creatures and things like that and then they the boundaries dissolved and they found their way into my body as these (laughs) intercellular (laughs) parasites so it's like and it's funny because before i did the parasite solo pod on self-portraits as other people i did another solo pod a year earlier called paradise has parasites in which i was 
uh, told the story about this kind of like psychic parasite that I had encountered on an ayahuasca ceremony. So it's like there, there's so many, I, th- I think it's a beautiful distinction just to like tie that up to like to bring the saucer down to earth. The idea that if the saucers, if the aliens land and visit us, that's a beautiful metaphor of like heaven and earth conjoining yes, and the, yes. the, um, again, the estranged alien parts yes. of the psyche bridging the divide in hopes of embracing us back into totality. No, that's beautiful. And I think that is like the, the whole point of a lot of this stuff. And uh, actually my buddy Vuk, he says uh, very, it's very similar to the pareidolia example, but resonates with what you just said too, where if you see a cloud and you experience that cloud as a UFO and you see that as a UFO encounter, then it is a UFO encounter. Mm -hmm. And what matters is how that impacts the rest of your day, the rest of your week, the rest of your life. The whole point is how these things allow us to live in the world. And I think that that's something right. that people forget when they get called up. And that's why the ideas that you explain to me that sound like, you know, that some people could be like, oh, that's not as fun or that's not as, uh, you know, mystery inducing. It's like, no, it's way more mysterious yeah. and way yeah. more fun and creative. And those are the ideas that I love sharing. And I'm so glad that you took time to share them all with uh, yeah. the listener, the invisible, invisible listeners, as you call them. Yes. <laughs> uh, one, one more thing on what you just said is that because you mentioned this earlier, the idea of like the art inspired by UFO encounters or things like that, right? So like if you encounter a cloud that you think of as a UFO, then that is a UFO encounter. And especially if you can extract something from that, that you can then bring back into the experience. Like you make a mark of that similar as like, you know, we talked about earlier, the kind of the, the aggregate egregores Mm -hmm. uh, impressing themselves upon us. And then you leaving a mark or or an offering on the altar to like reify their existence. Like, that's why I love Close Encounters of the Third Kind in that sense, because it's about artists and aliens, as, you know, Stuart Davis's podcast Stuart, yep. was called. Yeah, yeah. And that has been, that's what I started this podcast, or that's one of the reasons I started this podcast, is because I spend so much time at a drawing table just listening to stories of weird stuff to keep those kind of novelty mm-hmm. juices going. And I started realizing that, 80, I don't know what actual percentage, but a large percentage of experiencers were already artists or they became artists or creatives after that experience. It's like they touch this numinous thing and they have to Mm -hmm. express something and they don't know why they have to express it. And it's just so paralleled with that idea of, you know, figuring out how to be comfortable with sitting in mystery. And it seems like creativity Mm -hmm. is a big way that people integrate these things. And then you can start, there's so many parallels between just what I, like I tell people, a lot that I don't have any real big paranormal experiences or things outside of like synchronicities that revolve around things like we've experienced and things with this podcast. But I sit at my drawing table and I touch the same fabric every day. Like I have a paranormal experience by making things, whether it's a silly Mm -hmm. picture for a coffee bag or a stupid woodcut that no one's going to see. Like it's all like touching that same fabric, I feel like. And yeah, I don't know. I just, this was such a wonderful conversation and I just can't, can't wait to share this with everybody because I feel like the more that people are exposed to the ideas, like what you're talking about, whether they've, 
jive with them or agree with them or anything if it makes them think a little weirder and stop and like realize that it's all silly and not as serious as they uh, think it is then like that's a really important thing so keep doing what you do forever because it's very it's the world needs it for sure <laughs> uh, i'll keep going man i'll keep going thank you it's uh it's been no a problem. mutual pleasure wonderful well if, if to wrap this up in a typical podcast fashion would you like to tell everybody where to find your work and support you by painting can people support your art show digitally can they uh, purchase more of the paradoodles you were talking about yeah so the easiest way to find me and the various portals that lead to social mania i was going to say social media <laughs> is uh uh the uh, and then you can also find my Instagram. I'm pretty active on there at V-O-I-D underscore D-E-N-I-Z-E-N. That's void underscore denizen. Uh, and that's also where you can find some of these paradoodles that um, I made that are for sale for $25 a piece, which includes shipping within the U.S. So it's a pretty good deal for a little original. Uh, so look through those if you're interested in supporting me that way. Uh, another way, I have prints for sale on my website. I have some books, as I mentioned, which you can find there, Impatient Transformations being the most uh, recent one that I read a little bit from. Uh, the original art that's hanging up at the Athenaeum, if you're in New York City, uh, please stop by there and, and also support this brick-and-mortar psychedelic library and event space and check out psychedelicassembly.com. They're doing wonderful things. I, I really want them to thrive and flourish in this world. And uh, the original pieces that are up there, I, I will gradually trickle them onto the Instagram feeds, but also largely because they're so detailed and meticulous, it's, it's best to see them up close. Sometimes I'll make little video tours of the paintings so that you get a better sense of like who's in there and meeting the locals and stuff like that, which, you know, all that stuff you can find also on my YouTube and et cetera, et cetera. Just go to theungoogleable.com and, and click some buttons. Wonderful. And like I've oh, said and my Patreon, several times. My Patreon too. That's oh, yes. To yes. It's a whole secret okay. vault of, of exclusive materials there at patreon.com slash void denizen, V-O-I-D-D-E-N-I-Z-E-N. For like a few bucks a month, you can uh, interact with me and my works through there exclusively. All right. Back to you. Wonderful. Well, I will be putting links to all of that like a good podcast host in the description and everything else because, yeah, I'm uh, I'm very excited to share this and thank you for taking the time and let's do it again for sure because, like I said, th so this is one page of like three pages that I wrote down in the oh, last cool. couple of days that we got through and I definitely, you're, you just have a very, uh, I love talking to people that are better at expressing ideas that I feel like I are very personal to me and you are that to a T. So I would love to just have like one of the things I have written down are just word prompts that I feel like I could say to you and let you just go <laughs> off. On. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that, that jukebox uh, kindredness. Cause I, I get to, I yes. love your zeal and your preparedness and, and just your enthusiasm for these topics. And you're also very knowledgeable. Like you've, you've tapped into a lot of uh, the information I and the different perspectives that are out there. So I think it's a, a really beautiful thing to have you at the helm and pressing these Aww. different prompt buttons <laughs> just to, uh, to allow the deluge to pour forth and help me organize my own um, inner life, you know, because otherwise it's just clunking around in some metaphoric mind space. 
I super appreciate that because it's one of those things where I'll listen to hours of people like you talk and be like, oh, I could I could have a great conversation about this. I'd love to just talk back. But then I stop and I think and I'm like, oh, I, I'm never I've never been the most articulate or the best talker or whatever, you know, like I'm not great with words, but I realized eventually that I don't have to do the talking. I just need to prompt people enough to let them do the talking. And then it's just like story time for me, which is that the makes best for a like, good show. Yeah. And when I have people like you or Josh Kutchin or Mitch Horowitz, these people that like the work means a lot to me, it's even easier. And I feel like the other advantage is I've got to hear people like you talk on Ramin's podcast or weird studies. And also I've seen different aspects of you via these different posts. Right, and I'm like, right. I want to put my little aspect on here. Like I want to ask about the Grant Morrison. Like I've never really heard you talk about that on other episodes outside of like your own show. So I just right. love how podcasting allows for these different reality tunnels via the interaction between the two people. And that's where I was right. like, I guess it doesn't matter if you have something to say. It's more about the, two people saying something together <laughs> hell yeah man co-create this reality yeah. beautiful exactly wonderful well enjoy the rest of your day i'll definitely be reaching out to do it again soon sounds great man right, when does this care. one come out do you think oh not this saturday but next saturday so okay, cool. what is that the first Looking saturday of that. september yeah i'll make sure i Correct. give you plenty of <laughs> Thank you.